You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 172. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to find your podcast apps. I surely hope we're there. Or I should say not your find your podcast apps, but where you like to find your podcasts uh, using whatever app. You know what? We'll just, whatever, forget it. Just go on. We can't have nice things, Jay-Z. You, you start off. Yeah, I don't think Gen Z calls them apps anymore. Whoa. They call them dillies. That's weird. Uh, well, anyway, uh, visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, example discussions, and uh, links to all our dillies. I don't know why that's so funny to me, but it just is. It's so much funnier. Um, I'm surprised you didn't know. I mean, of course I did. But uh, yeah. So uh, where did you leave off with the dillies? And you talked about the the uh, Twitter at codingblocks. Yep. Or uh, head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. And with Hi. that, Oh, I'm Joe Zach. Uh, I'm Alan Underwood and I am Michael outlaw. This episode is sponsored by Datadog, the cloud scale monitoring and analytics platform that unifies metrics, traces, and logs. So you can identify and resolve performance issues quickly. And Linode, Simplify your infrastructure and cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. <laughs> I'm going to catch some flack about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth it. All right. It always is. That's the thing. Like, if you're going to risk not being able to participate on one of the episodes, then you have to know that the other two thirds of the of the show must fill in for you and that is just a requirement that's right so throughout the show we'll be um speaking as alan and we won't be explicitly calling out so you're just gonna have to know when we're representing his viewpoint it's gonna be very confusing we're sorry (laughs) sorry not sorry well we'll 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 make up for it with all with all the the dub w's dubs as we as we say any url for the remainder of the show that's right. See, that was right, right there. Uh, reference. Great. Okay. All right. Well, today uh, we're continuing on with our favorite book, Designing Data Intensive Applications, and we're going to finish up the chapter on partitioning. <laughs> and so, uh, which is amazing. This is a chapter in just two episodes. Uh, it's a record. Well, yeah, but you want to hear a record though? Like technically, if you if you were to like look at the physical version of this book, we have covered less than half of it. Yeah, it's crazy. Even after this episode, we will have still covered less than half of it. That is how, like, you could take that as a bad sign, like, wow, we're really slow at, like, reviewing this book. But also, you could just take it, like, that's how full of content, of great material this book is that we've yeah. gotten less than half the way through. Yeah, it's it's dense. It is, I don't know, cheese? Like, what's, what's something that's dense and full of goodness? Like, I don't know, cheddar. I mean... Sure, I'll take that. Havarti, yes. All For right. some reason, I kept wanting to think of like cakes, but then I'm like, well, not really. So. Ooh, mm, I don't know. Good cheesecake. This well, is good cheesecake. I was thinking, like, for some reason, like, do you, you guys? Yeah, you have Publix down there, so I was thinking of like the Publix yeah. uh, buttercream icing oh, cakes. You yes. know, for some reason, and I'm like, well, that doesn't really meet your dense criteria. But oh my gosh, now I can't think of anything else. Yeah, it's good. And now the listeners are like, wait a minute, I got to pull over. I knew I needed to go to the grocery store for some reason. This is what happens when Alan's on around. (laughs) 
Uh, I guess we're also this whole show will be about guitars and mountain bikes, and somehow we'll fit in partitioning. All right, and Metallica. Yeah, and Metallica. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, last episode we talked about data partitioning, which is how you can split up your data set when you've got too much data to fit on a node, or you have uh, like performance requirements where it just makes sense to split up data so you can do more work in parallel or find it faster. And we talked about uh, two different partitioning strategies, basically using uh, key ranges like 0 through 100 go over here and 100 through 200 go over there, which is nice when you have uh, like homogenous data uh, with well-balanced. And we talked about hashing, which is uh, a way of kind of distributing things based on the key that uh, use a little bit of randomness there to hopefully spread things out more so you can avoid hot spots or uh, places where your data is... Uh, uh, just uneven and causes unnecessary strain on parts of your system when you've got other parts of your system that are just uh, bored to death. And so this week, uh, this episode, we're going to be talking about the rest of the partitioning chapter, uh, which primarily focuses on secondary indexes, rebalancing partitions and data, and also uh, routing. But first, we've got a little bit of news. Yeah, so uh, I guess we're going to be doing the game January again. So have we set on date? I think I saw that you had you had created that the game jam invite, but I didn't notice. I don't recall if it had a date specified. Is it January? It is currently scheduled for jam January the month, and I did keep the same dates as last year, so I didn't have to update the artwork. <laughs> and it happened to fall on a weekend again. So I was like, oh, so I don't know where those assets, you know, I don't know where that, you know, P, that uh, PD, whatever PSD is. Um, so currently it's scheduled for the 21st to 24th, but I haven't thought a lot about those dates. So I haven't looked to see if there's anything else major going on. But currently that's when it's planned. And I think, uh, I think, I don't know, no one's complained about it. So I guess that's when it is. Yeah, we're still looking for a theme for it, though. So I yes. did see an email went out with the survey for theme ideas. I read some of those uh, theme ideas. We got some good stuff coming in, um, but I don't know that you've picked a final or I guess I assume oh, we're going to do the same way as what we did last year. Yeah. I where we'll take everybody's and then let everybody vote on the the top yeah. favorites and, you know, go with that. Yeah. So we got that from uh, super good Dave who uh, saw that with other game James doing that. And basically what we do is we gather up uh, ideas for themes. So if you got one, email us or uh, tweet at us and we'll add to the list and we'll do a couple rounds of voting or hit and, me um, up on Slack at Alan. Yep. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, let them know we'll get on the list and then eventually um, we'll do a couple different rounds of voting. And it's not going to be like, um, you know, uh, annoying. Like we'll probably just, I forget how we did it last time, but whatever we did it last time is how we'll wean it down. And then the final uh, theme will be announced basically right at the start of the jam. And that's just to get your kind of creative juices flowing. There's something about having a theme that kind of um, either makes it inspiring or it will put some, that blank page problem. Yeah. It puts some, it puts some boundaries on it. So like you're not left to think about like the entire world of possibilities. You're like scoped down to a set of things. So. Yeah, yeah I like and I it. really like that. Last, time. last year's theme was everything is broken, and we got a lot of broken games, which is really funny, and it worked out really well. Especially if you're, uh, you know, like make it a lot of bugs like I do. How about how about there's a ticket for that? Um, hey, that's a great theme. Uh, <laughs> let me add that to the list here. Well, I was thinking uh, it's just mine was about tickets. <laughs> yeah, it was, and it was a that was a great game. Uh, I'll done it in Angular. 
So yeah, so looking forward to that. And I did just uh, finish up the Create with Code course where I'd, um, that was a, a something on Unity, one of their free courses that I mentioned where I worked through five game prototypes. So I'm going for Unity this year. I'm really excited about it. And I don't know what I'm going to do this year. Because like last year, as you mentioned, I did the Angular one. And I, I thought about like maybe doing another Angular kind of approach because from the simplicity of like not having to worry about like things to install and it being easy for other people to use, but it definitely didn't have the polish of uh, the other games for sure. Some of them yeah. are so good, man. Like oh, no. just the, like in terms of polish, like yep. sounds and art and the gameplay, like there were some, there's some serious game developers that were uh, part of that game jam for sure. Absolutely. I can feel the, um, I, I never finished uh, this one. I need to go back because uh, I figured out the, or I got some help in the comments about it. The one where you're wandering through the woods. So like these uh, pol- pol- polygonal trees. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, it was really cool. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah, we're looking forward to doing that again. We're going to do a couple rounds of voting. Go ahead and sign up. We'll have a link to the Game Jam in the show notes here. And we'll be talking about it a few more times. So uh, keep an eye out for that. And it's just fun to keep up with the, the um the uh which called the theme voting and stuff and so if you've got one that you like uh lobby for it let us know and one more thing yeah uh so i got a new macbook pro holla showed up almost a month early from when they originally projected it look at the big dog over here yeah super excited so it does have a notch which i uh, instantly learned to just not see that doesn't bother me at all oh really like like you just immediately now, because yeah. your does your phone currently have that no <clears throat> oh okay no it does have a little dot for the camera though which also i didn't even know until i looked at it so i just have learned to ignore it oh it's really just got a little hole little circle and so like you have screen above it and below yep. it and beside it huh neat yep and I'm loving it. I haven't done a whole lot. I am able to run Unity, which has been nice because I haven't. I've been uh, locked out of that. Uh, Unity was just too hard to even open a blank project on my 2013 laptop. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to being able to do some more couch type stuff there. And I've already been doing some experiments and tutorials, just kind of while watching TV in the evenings, whatever. So it's really exciting, and uh, I've just been loving it. So I haven't had any problems with it. Um, there's a few things that I've used, uh, installed the beta for. Because uh, they didn't have a like an Apple Silicon full-on version for, but the, the Intel versions also work. You know, it's, I guess they do some sort of emulation there. That's so I haven't run into any problems. Yep. Yep. Did you uh, did you run it through like a Geekbench? No. No. I should. You're not out. Like that's. I'm. I'm always curious. Any new piece of hardware, I'm always like, I just want to know. Like, how did it do? Yeah. yeah I want. I should compare it to the Geekbench I did like eight years ago. <laughs> maybe pour one out for that old machine yeah for sure yeah yeah put ubuntu on it <laughs> yeah i still so, yeah i still use my old hardware though so yeah i don't know that i want to know what your geekbench score is yeah <laughs> or maybe i don't know man it's a great year to upgrade to mvp look it's looking like yeah all right so let's talk about partitioning i i, I do want to uh address one thing though so you had mentioned at the start about uh, it being like because the data is too uh, big to fit on one machine. So like scalability, um, you also mentioned performance was another reason. And I don't know that availability was really talked about. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, 
Well, but, but in you, or at least you didn't mention it, but we definitely did talk about like replication uh, in, in the past, but I, I was, uh, as I was prepping for the show, I was, you know, doing some searching out there on the interwebs as you do. And, uh, I came across this one site called interview grid and they were talking about like the key benefits of partitioning. And they included one, a fourth reason that I kind of take issue with, but we hadn't ever discussed it. Do you think you might know what it is? Data retention. Security. Oh, okay. I kind of, the reason why I take issue with that, I was kind of like, well, I mean, yeah, I guess you could say it's kind of like a benefit, but it also is like, I kind of think of that as like a reason why you would do it. So like later they, they mentioned uh, the, the different strategies for partitioning and so they talk about like horizontal horizontal versus vertical partitioning. But then the other one that they mentioned was functional partitioning. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, you can almost view like security as like a functional type of partitioning. Like, hey, all my yeah. sensitive data is going to be off over here. But then I'm like, is it really is that really a partition or would you just think of that as like a different table or even a different technology? Right. Does that count as yeah. partitioning? Like, I, I don't know. I kind of take issue with that. Yeah, that's weird. I, I definitely hadn't considered that at all. And, um, I, I, you know, I guess if you had it in different physical data, you know, like co-location centers and somebody steals the computer, then having your data partitioned and split up is good. Uh, or if you have things like keyed differently, but it still seems like in, in all the cases we talked about, your clients would be able to access. They weren't limited to any partitions. But, you know, maybe I guess if you partitioned by like if you had a multi-tenant uh, solution, and you partition your data by tenant, then you could encrypt those partitions differently. In that case, I see, you know, the security argument, it's just different. Okay. I'll buy that then. So security, if you were to partition, cause we did talk about in the last episode, um, <clears throat> we used like fortune 500 companies as an example and like how you could like implement. I didn't know. I don't know that I caught it out explicitly, but kind of implicitly like some of the discussion, uh, I assumed that like there might be some row level security there. And so I think I'd said something like, you know, if you had it partitioned by tenant and you did a select star, you might only see, you know, things for your specific, um, cause you know, for that, for that logged in as that customer, you would only see the data for your yourself or your company. Yeah, that's cool. So, okay. Uh, uh, I guess I could buy that then. All right. Yeah, so I'll they won me over. All right. So security is a fourth benefit of partitioning. Yep. Dunk. Uh, I'll allow it. Uh, <laughs> all right. Yeah. So last episode we talked about obviously key range partitioning and key hashing uh, partition uh, hashing to deterministically figure out where data should land based on the key. And the key is the really important part here because if you said, "Hey, I've got uh, you know." user id one two three and partitioned by users then we would know where to go look but that only helps you in the case that you're trying to look up a specific key um, it doesn't help you if we say like i want to find users named outlaw or uh users who are you know uh in goods you know, who owe us money or something like that you know it, it, there's no help at all for that and so in those cases you have to look at every single row and every single partition in order to find that because there's no other help that you get all you know that the data is partitioned and the solution for that is what we call secondary indexes with the, the first you know the primary index is just being how things are physically located 
uh, on the partition. Yeah. So I think like in to, to carry on with the example that we gave last time, I think I had mentioned an example where like, um, you want to look for, a, you're looking for car, a specific car, right? And in the example that I mentioned, it was like, oh, well, you're looking for Lamborghinis. And depending on like how your index was done, you wouldn't know how to necessarily, it might be more difficult to find that. And so we had talked about like the idea of like an encyclopedia where, um, you know, you could go straight to the L uh, portion of the index for Lamborghini. But if you were looking for a specific one, you know, then you could have it by license plate. And if your index was only by license plate, then it was like you would have to look at every license plate in order to figure it out. But in this case, with a secondary index, your primary key could still be the license plate or, or, you know, VIN, depending on your use case, but let's go with license plate. And then uh, based on the secondary index, you might say like, Hey, give me all the license plates for the Lamborghinis. Like you could go and find all the Lamborghinis instances based on that secondary index. Yeah, I like that. Um, I kind of come up with a contrived example here about um, partitioning credit card transactions. Um, and I use that throughout the rest of the show notes. I'm wondering if it's worth switching. I like the car thing. Well, I mean, the book also used cars. Um, they did. They were in on colors. I, I was just trying to relate it back to what we were talking about in the past, but we can definitely go with the credit card thing. It's fine. I, I was just yeah, trying to like, tie the two, the two yeah. episodes together. Yeah, that was uh, smart. I should finish listening to that episode. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't there last week. Uh, but anyway. But, I mean, uh, I like the credit card too because we also talked about e-commerce stuff too. So it's fine. All right. Well, let's stick with it. Uh, let's do some typing. So uh, in this system that I kind of uh, contrived up here, imagine that you have a, a system where you're partitioning credit card transactions by hash of the date. And by date, I mean the day, like uh, November 11th or whatever it is. Uh, you know, all the transactions for the 11th go here, all the transactions for the 12th go there, all the transactions for the 13th go somewhere else. And uh, when I tell you that I need uh, to sum up all the transactions for last week, well, that's really easy. We know go look at, uh, you know, seven partitions and we just go through and sum all that data, which is really nice. But it if also we means say, you're going to have a hot, a skewed, uh, you know, partition. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like ripe for hot spotting issues. That's a prime example of where we say like, we mostly care about most, you know, recent data. And so we're constantly pinging the most, <laughs> the most recent partitions and the other partitions are, are dormant. So there's definitely problems with our partitioning, partitioning scheme here. Yeah. And I that's mean, like a great example of it. Cause, cause if you were to think of like an Amazon or something like large like that, and if they were to partition on date and so like all of their customers as they're buying new stuff are always writing to the same partition. Yep. Yeah. Uh, there's some benefits too. Like we, we talked about um, being able to do like hot and cold uh, indexes. Um, so you can basically say like, well, the last seven days, those partitions are always going to be located on the best hardware. And the other stuff, we're going to put that on like a cool or cold uh, storage. It's like maybe spinning disks or something cheaper and uh, only use it for like reporting or whatever. I think they actually get into something similar to that later on in this portion of the book where they were talking about <clears throat> you could have – um like physically different hardware even for your partitions and like some technologies like Mongo and Elasticsearch come to mind, I believe. And I Mm -hmm. think there might've been another one that was called out where it'll, it'll specifically allow you to say like, Hey, this bit of hardware can handle more load. So it'll handle more partitions than this other set of these other nodes. And so you could have it to where like, 
you know, maybe those are the beefier machines that have like uh, ridiculous SSD raids versus, you know, the other one might be tape archive or something. Yeah, absolutely. And it's great for data retention. So Elasticsearch, uh, they call it, it's part of their index lifecycle management ILM policies. So you can say like last 30 days goes on this pool of uh, servers. Next uh, 60 days goes on this pool. And then uh, after that, it goes to, you know, like the, the kind of the, the worst hardware. And then after a year, it gets deleted. So the, the data uh, in that case is partitioned by date. And it just kind of marches through. So it starts out on the hot servers, eventually moves to cold, eventually moves to really cold and eventually disappears, which is really nice for, you know, certain like government regulations require that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. You know, that's a case where you're like absolutely just embracing the hot spotting, <laughs> uh, you know, for, for good or bad. Uh, but in that situation, what if I ask you to count all the transactions for a particular credit card? Uh, like how many visa versus how many Amex? Well, I was thinking like outlaw calls and says, Hey, uh, I've got a fraudulent, uh, transaction on my credit card. Can oh. you tell me uh, all my other transactions so we can figure out if they're legit or not? Yeah. But because the, because you keyed on the date, then yep. you, you can't go and find all of Michael's transactions yep. unless so you we say a secondary index. Right. So if you imagine, We've got uh, 356 partitions, right? That's uh, ooh, that's an expensive query. So if that's the kind of thing you're doing often, then uh, that's pretty awful. Especially if you consider, you know, maybe uh, maybe in a year I've only had uh, 20 transactions or something. So you're finding these needles and a, a whole lot of a whole whole bunch of uh, uh, haystacks. Yeah, and they referred to we. I mean, we talked about it last time about the idea of like where you there might be reasons why you do want to have uh, to query all the nodes for something, some piece of data. Right. And, and some of this, these technologies actually, um, you know, take advantage of that. And, and there was a term for it here that I didn't even, that we didn't even hit on the last time that was called scatter gather where, where your query does get scattered across all of the different nodes. And then you gather that up and, and, uh, in the last episode, I think Alan referred to it. He was using the Elasticsearch um, uh, the, the hierarchy, or you know, like architectural hierarchy, as the as the example where we were talking about. Like, um, I don't know that I forget the the Elasticsearch terminology, but y- you would know, Joe, where it was like there'd be the, the master node, and then underneath it there would be, you know whatever the other data nodes are and the master node would be required, would be responsible for spreading that query out across the different uh, nodes. And then it would gather up the results and then package that up as the re- the return. Yeah. I think there's uh, like four or five different node types in elastic. So uh, master is the one that does the routing and data has the data. It's got ingestion and I think there's something else, but um it, yeah, it's cool. And each node can have different roles. So you can have ones that are just for routing or ones that are just for data uh, based on, you know, your your use cases there, which is really cool. So uh, and we're going to get into routing later in this chapter. Yeah. So scatter gather is so you could do the scatter gather technique to to grab these credit cards across the 365 partitions, which, mm-hmm. by the way, that assumes that your partitioning strategy here was like going to always produce the same result for a given day, regardless of year. Yep. But when you said partition by date, I assumed year was part of it too. So you might actually have <laughs> more. Yeah. It's, it's 365 times however many years old your company is. 
right? right? Yeah, imagine seven years trans. So yeah, seven years uh, retention policy. Uh, so there's thousands of partitions to check every single record, and I mean it's just a ton of work. And if one of those partitions is unavailable, say a node's down, or uh, maybe some other operation that we'll have some examples coming up here in a little bit is happening, and so it's uh, slower to get that data then basically you are held back to whatever, whichever one's slowest or else you're going to get inaccurate results. Yeah. And you'd hope that your company is successful too. So those first, the first year or two, those seven might be easier to search because the indexers right. are relatively smaller, but those last few, you know, those last couple of years, you know, your business is booming. So there, those indexes take a while to search. Yeah. So you don't want to have to do these uh, 2,400 searches or, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, right. And you know, the chances that searches. your customer has had that credit card for seven years too. It's probably pretty low. It's probably, you know, you oh, probably yeah. only really care about, you know, if you're talking about fraud, maybe you only care about the first year anyway. And so, you know, you can probably trim it down in other ways, but um, yeah. So, uh, so the solution here though, the, the way to make this better is to keep secondary indexes, which keep some metadata about our data that helps us keep track of it. So when, you know, I mentioned the user, we might want to keep a secondary data structure or even a secondary system that says, hey, this user shows up in these partitions. And so now, instead of looking at thousands, maybe I'm only looking at 11 or some much smaller number, which is really nice. The example that they gave in the book for this, too, I always forget the term for it, um, because whenever you, whenever we think of like the word index in regards to like reading or something like that, you always think of the thing in the back of the book. But the thing in the back of the book that's called an index in, you know, our in 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 programming terminology is not, uh, it's like a reverse index if I remember right is the term. Yeah. <clears throat> and so, but it, but obviously they never refer to like, hey, go to the back of the book and look in the reverse index. But really, that's what this secondary index is. Is is it's basically like the back of your book where it's like look for the keyword of uh, Lamborghini and it's like, oh well, here's all the primary keys. That have, have uh, you know, that or or here's all of the, um, go, going with your credit card example, uh, you know, look for Michael, and here's all of the transactions that have his, um, where he used that credit card. Yep, pages one thirteen through one fifteen, pages two hundred eleven, pages seven hundred. Yeah, yeah. So, so that secondary cool. index just points back to the primary key that that's used, or at least in the example that they gave here. And if you don't have that, uh, if, uh, if you don't have that index, then you've got to read the whole book every yeah. time you want to find it. Yeah, every time you want to find it. Yeah, it, the, um, I mean, he, I don't know that the author uh, really got into like the underlying me- storage mechanism for this particular case of the secondary index, but I, but the examples that you know, at least in the pictures that he showed he used the primary key as what the secondary key was pointing to. So I was just assuming that it would, you know, stay consistent with that. Yeah. Cause they're really basic. Like we know relational databases are kind of famous for keeping a lot of statistics about their indexes so they can uh, kind of route things in a smart way. And you can bet they're not doing just simple lookups on all these. Um, so that we definitely, the data structures that we're talking here are about very simple. So you can just kind of imagine that things get kind of tweaked and, and taken on from there. And, he, and this whole chapter is really kind of biased towards NoSQL, I thought. And they talk a little bit at the end about, um, kind of more complex data warehousing. Huh. So, so like key value lookups was like a heavy emphasis here. Okay. I, I, I don't. Okay. I, so I we'll didn't really take we'll away that thing, but I can definitely see why you would say that. 
Uh, yeah, I'll try to tell you on it later. Because this builds up into relational databases. Like we'll, we'll talk about how things break down a little bit uh, coming up. Okay. But uh, yeah, and then there's uh, future chapters on it, of course, because of course there are, right? Right. That's the whole deal of this book. <laughs> so uh, one other th- thing I just kind of wanted to point out that's kind of fun is like a lot of times you can answer your query just by looking at the index alone. Like sometimes you just want to count things or just want to report. And so you don't even need to look up the data. You can just look at the index and see. Okay, uh, mm. you know, Outlaw's got uh, 20 transactions here uh, over the course of the last seven years. And that's enough for reporting, for showing a, a bar graph is like all we need to know is that, uh, you know, that count in order to kind of show things. It's cool. Yeah. For like a uh, an OLAP type system where you just want to like do the aggregates. Yep. So like how many how many Lamborghinis are registered? How many how much purchasing does Michael actually do? Yep. Those types of things. Yeah. I like yeah, it. So that was cool. Um, and I want to mention too, secondary indexes are just complicated. So it's hard. Um, like HBase and Voldemort avoid them entirely. Whereas something like a search engine is something, a data structure that specializes it. And there's some pros and cons of trade offs. And we're going to be getting into here. Yeah. And they actually talked about like how in, um, like uh, I think in Elasticsearch, like it was specifically if anything that was going to be a, have a secondary index, uh, that thing was specifically called a field in the document. If I recall yep. correctly. Yeah, so absolutely. They were like putting like elastic terminology on top of this, uh, discussion. Yeah, it was really cool. We've talked about how other chapters were kind of like how to build Kafka. This chapter, it kind of felt like how to build elastic search to me, which is really cool. See, okay. Because now going back to your no sequel comment, like a lot of the times while reading in, in, you know, even mentioned it in the last uh, episode too. Like I kept coming at this thinking from an, uh, a Kafka point of view and it, and, oh, yeah. and in fact uh, I'll save it for now, but I'll tease it that there's going to be a part where it gets even more Kafka ish. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I called it out too. So yeah, that's a really good po- point too. Uh, I could definitely see that just with the um, one thing that Kafka really suffers on is uh, there's no secondary indexes. So um, there's not a way to say, oh, I also care about the user IDs. So all you get is things split up by partition. And in fact, you can't ever make updates. And you can't delete data once it gets into those partitions. So it's read only. So there's some trade-offs there. Like that's why Kafka is not, you know, it's not a database. It doesn't work well as a database because you can't retrieve data except by its the way it's partitioned. Yeah. And there's advantages to that, definitely, and uh, some cons too. I can't, I can't tease it any longer. I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and say like it was related to the routing. Oh, okay. Uh, that's not the part I thought. Inter- interesting. I thought you were going to talk about the number of partitions versus nodes. No, this. Well, we did talk about that last episode, some, somewhat, where I'd mentioned because um, a lot of this, like I, I you know, I, and I asked Alan this question too last episode was like, you know, when you're reading this you know, do you often like have something that you already know in your head that you're like kind of relating the information to? And so like you're coming at this from an elastic kind of point of view and between the two of us, like, you know, a lot more about elastic search than I do. And so like you're reading this and you're like very heavily elastic focus. Whereas like I was reading this and I was very much thinking like Kafka in, in my mind, like, you know, so I'm relating everything to Kafka or like, you know, and I'm sure we were both relating it back to like all of our experiences with, you know, SQL related databases and whatnot, but yeah. So, um, uh, definitely the, the routing section heavily 
I, I definitely was like, oh, this is absolutely heavily Kafka. Yeah, you know, I keep wondering, like, you know, maybe these episodes are terrible for people that are only working with, you know, relational databases, which is how I worked for most of my career was only with relational databases. But for me, working with, you know, Elasticsearch and Kafka and a relational database kind of in daily, uh, you know, uh, daily situations, it's so great to, like, I'll read a sentence in a book that says something on, like, Oh, so that's why it's like this, or that's why it has this limitation, or that's why we use this system for this use case. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I was, I was when you said that. I was like, no, that kind of makes me sad because I really want to hope that, like, if you were working only in a single type of technology, that you know, to your point exactly, that you would know, like, yeah, but uh, I keep running into this problem when I try to use this, uh, you know, SQL Server to do this, and why is that? And then, like, you can you know, this book can help to like expose you to why those problems are happening and like why these other technologies exist and like the problems that they solve. And, uh, you know, I had this thought that like this book, when, when did this book come out? Like this book is only like a couple years old, right? Um, so if I remember right, I, I don't remember the exact date. I want, Oh, 2017 is the first edition. So this, this book is like four years old. Uh, or four and a half. It's right. Cause yeah. Cause it was March of, tw- of 2017. So it's about to be about to be five years old. And in that short, short time though, I think that this book is going to stand the test of time of being like one of the, it, it is going to become one of our classic clean architecture, pragmatic programmers, uh, you know, refactoring uh, kind of books. Like it, you know, it'll be up there as like one of the greats, you know, with like the gang of four that we're going to like, cause there's so much, they, they do talk, he, Martin, Martin Kleppman does talk a lot about like specific database technologies, but everything is so generic and applicable to, you know, whatever the platform is that, um, it just helps to like understand. And, and he does a really good job of explaining some of this and that like, you know, you think about, um, like we keep getting things to where as a society, we keep working to, to tackle a complex problem until we make it to where it's so easy and trivial and we have libraries to abstract it yeah. to where it's no longer a thing. Right. And so, you know, in, in the seventies where like a lot of great technology apparently was invented. So we've learned during the course of this podcast, yeah. Yeah. uh, you know, there were things that, 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 it was this was it was way too far advanced, right? To to like get into like the routing and partitioning and kind of problems that they're talking about here. But you know they had documented a bunch of stuff back then that even this book has covered, right? But you know now we don't we don't worry about that. But I, I just think that like this book is going to like stand the test of time, uh, you know until until we get to the point to where we no longer care about uh routing and indexes and secondary indexes but i'm like i don't see that coming for like quite a long time not in my lifetime like i think it'll be so i, I think it's going to stay yeah. this time yeah i totally agree like you know we see uh those articles like top 10 uh program books every programmer should have or whatever i think this one should be in like the top five of all those lists like i was gonna say top it's not three. there now yeah that well that's why i agree it should be but I think like, you know, we're well, like this book is still kind of new, so it's still kind of saturating. But I think like 10 years from now, we'll still be seeing this this book in those lists. I mean, th- you know, the Gang of Four book has stood the test of time and it's only had one printing. It's still yeah. the original printing, if I remember correctly, of that book. 
So yeah, apparently they didn't make a single typo. So kudos to them. Um, I couldn't yeah. have done that, but um, you know, you think about that and how relevant it still is. The information that they put in there still is, but yet we have so much technology technology today to abstract like things that we create and whatnot. And yet the patterns that they described there are still very much a part of our regular world. Right. And still very important. So, so the concepts that are in this book, I think are like really key. So going back to your point about, even if you were in a single database technology, um, you know, that's fine, but you should still, these are things and concepts that you should still know. Like even it it would help you to understand the underpinnings of that single technology period. Even if you never did use uh, something like a document database or, uh, you know, something like a Kafka or whatever. Like if you stayed, um, if you stayed in a relational database, for example. So, yeah, I I totally agree. You know, a a lot of people kind of push back on design patterns sometimes, or at least you'll see it on Twitter, uh, specifically the book. But to me, it's it, the the argument is kind of that uh, the language features have gotten better, so you don't need to really be programming these anymore. But good luck using modern JavaScript frameworks without uh, you know without observers, and good luck using Java without builders or factories. You know these things like they, they've kind of become baked into the languages and frameworks. But that doesn't mean it's not worth you know learning about because that's how you make new ones. That's how you build those languages and frameworks, and also how you use them. Yeah. So yeah, I I, I think that book is also uh, top three. What are you talking about? Uh, the the two main strategies for secondary indexes, right? Uh, so document based partitioning and term based partitioning. And term based is really kind of an evolution of document. So let's start with document. And uh, so you remember our example there where we talked about partitioning our credit card transactions by date, uh, and also uh, the the example you gave of an encyclopedia. Imagine if we kept uh, secondary data structure along with each partition. So it's kind of like having an index in the back of each book in your encyclopedia set. So you go through and pick up like Aardvark to uh, automobile and you look in the back and look, you know, for uh, Aardvark and it'll tell you page one and page seven or whatever. Uh, that's uh, a very different solution from having a centralized kind of almost like table of contents or like one big index that tracks across all the references. Oh, you know what? I didn't even, that never even dawned on me, but yeah, I do like this example because then, like technically, uh, every encyclopedia does have a, a a secondary index along with it that is the document one, right? No, yeah, that's pretty cool. No, it would be the term based one. I'm sorry, but it's uh, it, it rides along with it. So with term based is like you'd have like one book in the set that all it does is just point to different areas, and you know obviously in the encyclopedia it's already organized alphabetically. But, um, you know, there's certain themes like you could look in the index and see like the 1920s. 1920s are referenced uh, for the Great Depression, but also Prohibition and also, uh, I don't know, Spanish-American War. And so those are different places where, you know, you want to go look and those are going to be in different uh, actual books. But in the books themselves, you could also flip the back and see if there's anything about the 1920s. And that would be what we call document-based partitioning. It's been so long since I picked up a physical encyclopedia <laughs> that maybe they don't actually have a reverse index in in the back of it at all. Cause really yeah, the, like one of the key differences here was that the document based partitioning, like you said, you have whatever partition has the, the partition on it, the, the secondary index is also beside it. It's with it. So mm-hmm. from you have the performance gain of 
Now, when you want to do that read, it's all right there on the same thing versus the term-based partitioning. It was also like kind of referred to as like a global uh, type of partitioning where there's think of it as going back to your elastic terminology there, the master node, like it knows that, Hey, for this secondary index, I want to look for, um, you know, transactions based on this credit card. It knows all of the partitions that need to, it needs to hit to run that query. And so it might get spanned across like say 12 different nodes to, to do that. And that's where that scatter gather comes back. Um, so you have the complexity there. So that was the downside of, of the term base versus the document. It was, you know, just the one thing doing it. Yeah, absolutely. So I just kind of um, peel it back a little bit to specifically talking about document based partitioning. And our, we said each node now has track of uh, its own indexes. So we can go when we query for users, instead of going and looking through every single row and every single partitioning and comparing is this my user ID? Is this my user ID? Is this my user ID? Now we go to each partition and say, hey, do you have any user ID 123? And it says, no, 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 no. Yes, no, 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 yes. And so the, the ones that say yes are the ones that end up getting queried. So it's much faster than looking at every single document in those databases. But still, you have to talk to every single partition to ask if it has that uh, secondary index. And so counting is easy because you can just go and, you know, like we talked about before, we say, hey, node uh, 2021, uh, October 5th, do you have any user ID, uh, you know, 123? And it says, yes, I've got three of them. Like, okay, great. That's all I need from you. Let's go check the 26th, the 27th, 28th, 29th. So we can count that up really easy. And this is a much better solution than obviously looking at every single record. Um, But... Oh, you know what's fun? Uh, I forgot about this. So remember Big O? So you know, we talked it. about, yep, we probably talked about that very early on. But the, it's the difference between a log of n search where we know, you know, things, uh, uh, we basically can go to each index and ask, do you exist? And if so, you know, assuming that the list is ordered by the keys, we can go and easily look those up in log of n time. But if we have to look at every data point, then we're basically looking at uh, each record, which is O of N, where N is the you know, each document in your entire data set. So, the bigger the yeah, data set, the bigger the savings. Yeah, because if you looked at um, O of log of N, it was like significantly smaller. If you go back to the big O cheat sheet, you know, like yep. o, o of N was like very linear. Right. Because it's whatever your count is. Right. But, uh, the log of that would be a, a significantly smaller number. So, you know, you could really save some time there. Like oh, on the big O cheat sheet, it was almost a flat line. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, it's uh, really great because the bigger the numbers get, the more efficient. So, um, let's imagine you've got a data set of 1 million, 1 million records. If you need to check 1 million records, you've got to do 1 million comparisons. If you want to do a, a log end based lookup of a million records, you have to do 20 comparisons, actually 19. And that's max. You're doing max 20 comparisons. So Wait. imagine if we go to 10 million. How did I, what did I do wrong? Cause if I do a log of 1 million, I got an answer of six. Uh, did you do log base two or log base 10? Oh, good point. Good point. 
Yeah, so sorry, I should have specified. So log base 2 of 10 million is, well, I don't know how to do that, and apparently in Google. <laughs> log 2, if 10 I, million. 23. Yeah. So with 10 times more data, you have to do 23 point something comparisons. So three more most. searches. Yeah. Then, well, I should even say three more searches, three more comparisons. Oh, right. Looking at the data. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's it's just a huge savings. Yeah. So that's what I mean when I say that, like, log of n is almost like the flat line when you look at the yep. big O cheat sheet because, you know, you get to really big numbers for n and it's still an extremely small number, relatively speaking. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, the, it's basically the only way we can work with huge sets of data. It's pretty much uh, if it's any if it's going to be um, you know O of n or bigger, then you pretty much can't do it at least not in real time. So that's how when you go to Google and you see like oh uh, seventeen and a half million results and it happened in less than a second. <laughs> yeah, that's how they did it. The only way that's possible. And uh, the downside is we do have to take a small performance set whenever we insert new items. So if we're writing a, a new credit card tra- transaction, we also have to go and we have to write this into the index. But if you're querying by that secondary index, uh, then that's fine. You know, that's that's going to be worth it. But and, there's uh, also the downside from a um, availability kind of point of view. Yeah, that's because right. Because it is like right beside that partition. So, you know, you would have to replicate it out as well. Yeah, so we call this a, a local index because it's stored locally to the partition. And if that partition isn't available, we can't respond to your query. So if one of my, you know, 2,000 or whatever we said, seven years, you know, so like two, 3,000, um, one of my t- partitions is unavailable for some reason, I can't answer your question at all, which is really fragile. So, so it's a, you know, it's a matter of, Query performance in case you know I have to wait whichever is slow one is slowest, but also my availability is taking a hit, which stinks. Uh, one thing you know we did mention is nice about this is uh, with data retention when the data drops off. Uh, in case of local indexes, done. There's no cleanup. You just drop the whole index. It's uh, or, sorry, the, the whole partition, and, and the indexes go with it. If we did have our indexes centrally located and we dropped. Uh, you know, older data, uh, which is every day we'd be dropping a partition. We have to go and we have to kind of scrub that directory of that partition saying this doesn't apply anymore. Just takes a little bit longer. Yeah. So just to elaborate on that, like if you had, if you were going to clean your data, if you were only going to retain 90 days worth of data and you wanted to drop the partition for the day and you didn't use the document based partitioning, and you'd have to go back to that global partition uh, or, or that global partitioning, secondary partitioning scheme and remove every record from it, which, you know, there could be thousands for, for like whatever that day is, depending on how successful your e-commerce shop is. Right. Which let's face it, it's going to be extremely successful because you've read this book. That's right. <laughs> totally, totally uh, transfers there that, that skill transfers. Yeah, yeah. So that was uh, that was pretty much it for document um, based partitioning. So in the case we've got these local indexes on the partition, uh, we take a little bit of a hit on uh, writing, but hugely uh, performance, uh, huge performance boosts on querying. So let's take that one step further for term based partitioning, which is evolution. And like we've been you know talking about, we've been kind of learning the lines there a little bit. 
But um, what it does is it takes those locals, gets rid of them, and it keeps a global index so that clients can go and talk to this global index, and then it'll tell them which partitions to go to. And so if our user only has, uh, you know, 20 transactions over seven years and those 20 transactions only happen on 11 different partitions, then we only need to go query 11 partitions. So that's a lot less stress on the system. It's a whole lot less network traffic. Uh, it's going to be faster because we don't have to wait on whatever is the slowest of 2000. Now we're waiting on whatever is the slowest of 11, uh, which is really great. And it's a whole lot less fragile because we've got this, you know, uh, presumably distributed system now storing this much smaller data set, which is going to be really fast to query. Yeah, they don't really talk about like how uh, that partition might be replicated and spread across, you know, because in, yeah. in, in like it kind of it, it got super meta at this point because it was like, well, OK, so now we're going to create another index of our indexes. And, you know, you might want to have a keying mechanism for that, spread that across partitions to yeah. increase, uh, real, you know, uh, performance and availability and whatnot and scalability. But um, maybe it would be okay because these are smaller. Like, I don't know. But it, it, it did get very it, it meta at that point. Yeah. It's basically like you've got a database for your data and now you need a database for your indexes. But it's smaller, so it's a little bit easier. So, uh, you know, that's what you got going for you. I did think about like, as I was reading this part of the book though, like I wonder like if you had to just for a challenge, if you decided, Hey, I'm going to write my own database. Right. Because like, if you remember, that's where this book starts with, right. Yep. It's like, Hey, let's just write a, a simple key value store uh, to a text file. And let's, you know, we'll just have some simple bash functions to uh, read and write data to it and start from there. Right. And, you know, imagine like the fun types of challenges that you would get into as you would start to scale this thing out and, and specifically, uh, things like this. And then I got to like thinking about like how complex it would be because like, I mean, really, you know, props to, to the authors and the developers that work on these technologies, because I started thinking about like just the, um, the file IO management of these systems. Like you can't, you can't write to this index at the moment because I need to put a lock on this index at the moment to keep prevent you from writing to it because maybe I'm trying to split it in the case of like uh, automatic partitioning uh, systems or whatnot. Right. Or maybe, uh, you know, I'm, I'm cleaning it up or for whatever reason, you know, just, just the file IO management alone is complex enough. Now to think about like these, um, you know, the different data structures we've talked about, like SS tables and, and LSM trees and whatnot, uh, you know, to think like, okay, now like I need to read this into memory and like, where do you go for it? And, you know, some of the file limitations, like they were mentioned, I want to say, Maybe it was like HBase that was like had a 10 gig limit on partitions before it would like automatically split. But it also had the capability of um, combining those files back together if the if they fell below. So they made the analogy of uh, I say they, but I mean, Martin Clipman, uh, he made the analogy of the um B tree and how like the B trees can work to where it can like split things out and then like collapse them back depending on uh, what's going on there. And like, 
like as I was reading this chapter, just like thinking of like how you would write the file management alone aspect of all of this. It was like just kind of like mind blown, kind of like thinking of like, well, this is why it's taken us decades to get to here. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then, yeah, it's just the low level details are so hard to get right. And so important to get a hundred percent correct. Oh yeah. And then you're going to take that and you're going to replicate that data to multiple nodes and you're going to split it up into different partitions. You're going to split those partitions, rebalance, and you know, eventually, I think like the the peak is kind of like distributed transactions across multiple <laughs> partitions and nodes, and it's just uh, amazing. Well, one <laughs> that it the, works at all. One of the things that also came to mind too is that, like, as they're talking about all of this, um, you know, when we're talking about the partitions and the replications, we talk about like one of the things that that's a key advantage is that you want to have the multiple nodes so that they can serve uh, different parts of the data. Because one, like, you know, we talked about like scalability, but also, uh, you know, availability might not even be able to fit on one machine or whatever. But when you talk about um, like repartitioning some of the data, uh, you know, on the fly or whatnot, whether it be to like expand or collapse the partition um, based on the need, then and, and if you needed to like reassign the partition to like another node, one of the things that came to mind was um, in, from a DB2 world. Um, in Oracle and, and it had had a similar concept, but I, I'm more familiar with it from a DB2 world, although the name eludes me at the moment. But their high availability solution, one of the things that you could do was you could have like a SAN, like a, a storage area network where it's all fiber based, right? So um, you have all of these things, all of this data sits on a disk array that you are accessing over fiber and then there's the servers can like literally um, they're literally sharing the same disc, the same mm-hmm. underlying disc. And so like transitioning from one node to the next doesn't necessarily have to be really all that expensive. So that type of idea was really dependent on like, well, what's your physical architecture and like, we'll get more to it in the, in the routing section um, because physical architecture, like really like it's that whole joke about like, uh, just turtles all the way down, you yeah. know, kind of thing, because, uh, it, it really started to matter like, well, okay. If, if all your partitions are like physically separate, you know, because maybe it's like in an AWS or, or, uh, Google cloud or Azure kind of world where like you don't control the hardware, but if you are the Googles or the Amazons or the Microsofts and you can control that hardware, then, you know, you can have some greater, um, some efficiencies because you could like localize that better, you know? Yep. And so your use cases can vary. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And it opens things up. So, you know, if you imagine I had like a really uh, good network storage solution, and I could, uh, you know, easily kind of grow it or, um, you know, replicate it, uh, dynamically. Then I could actually go out and start selling that data. And that's how, you know, that's how we got in S3 and Google Cloud Storage and Azure Blob Storage is basically, you know, kind of what that is. They went and they created these dynamically, uh, shiftable storage options that just store what you want and they keep track of it. Yeah. So in, so in the world where like you can't control your storage, then you, you, you know, 
you have different set of needs, but when you can control that, then like if you were to be all on a sand, then, but you know, you can have some, some improvements there with like how you could go from one node to the next, but also you lose, uh, some of this, uh, benefits in, in way of like, uh, protection. Like, I don't know that we really talked about that. We talked about it from, well, I guess retention or no, not retention. Um, availability would kind of be like under the availability area. Cause like if you lost like that one data center, if then that kind of assumes that if you have access to that sand, then you're all in the same data center or else you couldn't be on that same sand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just because of the limitations of the fiber networks, but yeah. Yeah. It's turtles all the way down. It's like, you said. It, really is. it so is. So, uh, so to take it back to uh, turn-based partitioning, basically, you know, it, it's just what you mentioned. So we've got the the global index now, and the uh, the benefit is that you've you've taken now this huge benefit of searchability for document-based partitioning, and now you've made another huge leap forward in performance because now instead of uh, us having to go to each partition, which can you know if you have thousands of them, uh, is really slow, and you're kind of network dependent, and you've got this kind of fragility built in. Now you can just go to the smaller system and say, you know, hey, uh, where's my stuff? And then you reduce that uh, right out of the gate to, you know, potentially uh, really much smaller uh, number of operations that you need to complete. But the downside is that there's overhead and keeping track of those in- indexes that's much higher than the uh, document-based partitioning because, like we said, if things uh, get modified, we have to go update the index. If uh, data drops out because of retention, we need to go modify the index. Every time we uh, insert new data, we got to modify the indexes. And this is yeah. like this one smaller system, but it's uh, really high traffic. And it's a database of your database. You yeah. want to delete that? You know, you got to go update this other database. Yeah, exactly. And you, just by having, um, you know, a separate index alone, you've got some kind of a, like an async problem built in there. So I need to insert my document, but also need to go insert the metadata, the metadata about my document. And, uh, you know, depending on how many secondary indexes I have, uh, you know, there could be multiple writes that need to happen in different spots just in my indexes alone. So now every single insert to my, uh, into my database is now, I don't know, 20 inserts, 11. Once you add a replication, you know, it's a multiple. So each insert is now, I don't know, 20, 30 operations that need to be written across uh, some number of nodes. And that's not all going to happen at the exact same instant. And so that's why when we talk about some of the stuff, like you're kind of looking at basically you know, talking about eventual consistency just on a single write, uh, which is part of the part of the reason I kind of thought of this chapter as being closely associated with like no sequel type things. Yeah, I, I know that like in the last episode, Alan and I had debated on um, whether or not, you know, you think of these indexes as another uh, database or not, you know, and and so we kind of talked about that and you know in, in even in the book there was i'm trying to find it now but there was like a a little blurb in like one of the footnotes where they they did make the point of like referring to it as like yeah you could think of these as like little mini databases within your database yeah even though it wasn't and like how i have traditionally thought of it and like that's one of the things that we talked about in the last episode was like how i've always thought of these is like you know just ways of you know like different tables of it but i i do get it because of all the uh complexity around it and the management and operation around 
you know, maintaining it. So now uh, Dynamo does say that uh, you can generally expect um, sub second, like a fraction of a second uh, for the inserts to happen to both the data and the indexes. But you can imagine that like that would kind of stink if uh, you are inserting data and imagine something goes wrong and it takes minutes. And if I look up the data one way, it works. If I uh, look it up another, it doesn't. And calling the secondary indexes an optimization is misleading because it's not just about making it faster. Because if that optimiz- if that secondary index hasn't been written yet, you won't find the data. So it's not just making it faster. It well, makes it findable at all. Well, that depends on like how you're searching for it though, right? Well, I assume you're so, trusting the indexes. Well, so unless you're well indexes. What I mean though is like if it, if it was written to the primary index and you're only looking for orders for today, then you'll find it. Yeah. But you, if you were to look for orders by credit card, then you know by a specific number, then yeah, maybe that secondary index hasn't been updated yet for whatever reason, and so now you can't find that. And so we've right. all been in that situation where we're like, I don't understand. Like I can find <laughs> this data this way. But yet, if I use this other method, it doesn't show up yet, right? Right. I think yeah, in the which past, is just kind of funny. I think I think in the past we've also talked about like when we talk because because this kind of um, only because you brought up DynamoDB, it kind of reminds me of like eventual consistency. And we've talked about like how you could go to Reddit and you could submit a a, a post and then you refresh the the page and you're like, wait, where did it go? Yeah, there. <laughs> you know. So. Um, I mean, it's not exactly the same as what you're talking about, but it just kind of came to mind. Yeah, it's kind of funny to think, uh, you know, we talk, I, at least I think about when writing to data is either it's either there or not. And so we talked about one of the strategies was like read your own rights. So we say, hey, I'm, I'm going to like this post on Reddit, but I don't show or don't let the client return until we verify that we can look that like up and that we've got it in our database. So it comes back and says, OK, we got your like. And then uh, maybe you refresh the you know the page somewhere else, and it doesn't show up because it hasn't made that that secondary index that keeps track of those likes by user or by post or by date or however else they do it hasn't shown up yet, and so it shows up as here on one page for your user and not here for another. Yeah. Just kind of confusing. Today's episode of Coding Blocks is sponsored by Datadog, the monitoring and analytics platform for cloud scale infrastructure and applications. Datadog's machine learning alerts, customizable dashboards, and 450-plus vendor-backed integrations make it easy to unify disparate data sources and pivot between correlated metrics and events for faster troubleshooting. By combining metrics, traces, and logs in one place, you can easily improve your application's performance. And why I can't emphasize that combining all that in one, because, like, I mean, we're talking about, like, uh, indexes and databases as it relates to this episode, specifically, like, partitions and whatnot, right? And, you know, Elasticsearch keeps coming up in the course of our conversation. And of course, of those 450 plus, 450 plus integrations that Datadog has, of course, Elasticsearch is one of them. Not only that, but they actually have like this single pane of glass view that you could have of your Elasticsearch cluster to know like, hey, what's the current rate of your queries and the current rate of indexing? So you want to know about the search and indexing performance of your cluster. Uh, what about resource saturation and errors? All that with JVM uh, heap and garbage collection metrics, network collection, single pane of glass, all of that for your Elasticsearch cluster. And that's just one example of the many technologies that they cover. Yeah, you want to make great decisions about partitioning and nodes. Uh, you got to have the data. And the, <laughs> this is the way to do it. It's fantastic and it looks beautiful. 
But I don't actually want to talk about that because Dash just happened. And uh, I was just browsing YouTube. And as far as I can tell, all the talks for Dash have been uh, uploaded. And so you start with the keynote and then dive into some really great stuff there. Uh, I was just watching the uh, Ask an SRE uh, videos. Looks like there were uh, two of them. Uh, and I, I, I'd only watched one of them. So I'm excited to check out the other one for North America. Uh, they've got panels, case studies, uh, a bunch of sessions on security and incident response, uh, supply chain attacks. Uh, just really great stuff. And it's all uh, up on YouTube. So you can be watching or listening to that uh, while you're uh, doing the dishes or, uh, you know, hanging out. So give that a give that a shot. And then go and try Datadog free by starting a 14-day trial. And uh, you also get a free T-shirt once you install the agent. Yep. So visit datadoghq.com slash coding blocks. That's datadoghq.com slash coding blocks to see how you can unify your monitoring today. All right. So uh, I don't even know how we do this anymore. Do, do Am I supposed to, because I kind of gave up on the, on the, like the late night. Hey, listener. But, but then, but then, uh, you know, even in the last episode, like, you know, in the background, like Alan was still doing, so I don't know, maybe I'm supposed to like, Hey listener, if you wouldn't mind hey. leaving us a review, good. you need to head to www.codingblocks.net slash review, where you can find some helpful links and all your late night coding favorites. Uh, Morgan Friedman. <laughs> that was great. I was <laughs> Yeah, at first I couldn't tell if you do an Al Bundy or Morgan Freeman, but then yeah, I mean was, by the end it's obvious. <laughs> well, that's how bad my uh, late night radio DJ voice is then, because it was supposed to be, uh, you know, I was thinking of like the the smooth, sweet sounds of W J Z Z. <laughs> no, I mean that was straight up Morgan Freeman, just perfect. <laughs> I really, now that I'm trying to like you say that, I'm trying to think of like a Morgan Freeman thing, you know, or a catchphrase, and I'm like coming up blank. Yeah. So all right, well. Uh, so once again, uh, we will not, uh, have a, you know, survey for you to answer. Cause you know, wouldn't, it'd be a little bit odd to only have one answer and it would be super odd if you still lost even to yourself, that would be uncomfortable. I could do it. <laughs> I, I would feel bad for you. I don't want to put you through that. That wouldn't be fair to you. But, uh, so I guess we're kind of in my favorite portion of the show, survey says oh wait wait can you can you uh can you read this survey as samuel l jackson wait samuel l jackson yeah well i might have to drop way too many (laughs) f-bombs to do (laughs) (laughs) all right we're gonna have to put an explicit tag on this show if i do it that way (laughs) say what what no i'm not gonna (laughs) um all right so uh well okay fine how about if i ask you this first then do you know why the new Skindle, uh, Skindle, uh, Kindle screen te- is textured to look like paper? No, I don't. So you feel right at home. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> it's micro G. <laughs> Actually, that was dad jokes. That was right, the dad nice. jokes API. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. So for this episode's, survey we ask how many different data storage technologies do you use for your day job now this is important it's for that you use not the ones that are available in your company but just the ones that you use so your choices are just the one and it's the it's our hammer or two to three it's a quaint little data pipeline 
or four or more. Oh my God. Why do we have so many or none? Keep your data crap out of my CSS or, you know, whatever your front end, uh, choice of technologies are i'm assuming front end yep this episode is sponsored by linode simplify your infrastructure and cut your cloud bills in half with linode's linux virtual machines develop deploy and scale your modern applications faster and easier whether you're developing a personal project or managing larger workloads you deserve simple affordable and accessible cloud computing solutions you can get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit for listeners of Coding Blocks. You can find the details at linode.com slash codingblocks. And Linode has data centers around the world with the same simple and consistent pricing regardless of location. And I don't know if you've uh, ever looked at their um, the pricing calculator I was just looking at on their website. Uh, but because they're so uh, the experience for Linode is so simplified compared to like other cloud vendors, there's really only a couple of drag boxes to drag. It's really crazy because their pricing is so reliable and affordable and predictable. It's literally like how much memory do you have? How many nodes do you have? And you've got a little slider here for transfer and that's it. Uh, that's an incredible experience compared to some of the other things I've seen where it's just impossible to know how much you're going to be spending. And it's such a relief to, to know. And with a hundred dollars extra credit, you can see just how much you can stretch that. I mean, I, uh, I was able to run a, a three node Kubernetes cluster for months for less than a hundred dollars. Yeah. And when we say that you could use that hundred dollars to go towards like even personal projects, we're not kidding. What if now hear me out, Joe, hear me out. Cause this one's crazy. You ready? What if you just wanted to have your own CSGO server? Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. So, so you can go, I'm not, I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. You can go to Linode, go to the marketplace and there's a whole slew of things that you could just easily one click add to your cluster, add to your environment, right? Including CSGO. But I know you're thinking like, yeah, but we've been talking about databases and whatnot. Like, okay, fine. MongoDB is in there as well. Postgres is in there as well. Like you could have your traditional databases and, you know, play around with partitioning and like, you know, learn about that if that's what you want to do. But I mean, you know, it's time to go have some fun too and play some games. And that hundred dollars can go a really long way. Like Joe said, that pricing calculator, it makes it super easy to see what your costs are going to be. Plus their costs are so small. So like you can really stretch that hundred dollars out. So it's a, a, you know, high, uh, what, what's the word I'm trying to look for here? Like value, uh, you know, bang for buck that you're going to get here. Extreme, extremely high value. Uh, so you can choose the data center nearest to you. You can receive 24 by 7 by 365 human support with no tiers or hands off, you know, uh, or handoffs rather, um, regardless of what your plan size is. Cause haven't you always hated like you, you call tech support in the time that you need tech support. And instead of being able to get to that person, you keep getting bounced around from one person to the next or, or whatever, or you can't even get to a computer or to a person cause you keep going through an automated system. And with Linode human support, no, with no tiers or handoffs, regardless of your plan size. You can choose shared and dedicated computer instances, or you can use your $100 in credit for S3 compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and more. Yep. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Visit linode.com slash coding blocks. Again, that's linode.com slash coding blocks 
and click on the create free account button to get started. All right. So uh, let's talk a little bit about rebalancing because we don't always get things right the first time or things sometimes change. Like if you have to uh, add more nodes because you've got CPU or RAM problems or uh, maybe you've got lower traffic than you need to uh, than you used to and you need to save some money. Sometimes nodes just go down and you need to be able to, to recover from that. So those are all examples where you might need to repartition your, your data. And uh, basically, no matter how you do it, there's a couple goals that you generally want to kind of aim for. And the first is that you want to try, in most cases, to load, uh, distribute the load equally-ish. And I didn't say distribute the data equally-ish because, we, as we mentioned, there's different strategies for that. And sometimes you want to embrace hotspotting by um, kind of having different uh, hardware or, um, you know, you could have mismatched nodes, like different node pools where, like, you know, you're hooking up whatever hardware you've got in the closet. And so you want to make sure that the load is distributed equally to keep a consistent kind of query times. Uh, also, you probably want to keep the database operational during the rebalance. This is like now we're starting to get like heavily into where I was thinking of like Kafka as we started getting into like rebalancing and routing mm-hmm. types of conversations because Kafka especially can be a bit of a beast in in this particular uh, type of problem because like depending on the technology, it might not repartitioning your data may be a, you know, click of a button thing like, Hey, it's done versus it may be a huge effort to go and like rekey all your data so that it gets into a new partition because, you know, like Kafka specifically, if you were to just add on another partition, it's going to be like, great, but I'm still going to keep all the data, all the old data is over here because that's where it is. Yep. And, you know, you would have to like specifically reread and rekey data to move it around. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, there's a, a couple different approaches and uh, some pros and cons that we're going to get into. But there's one way that you absolutely should not uh, try to uh, basically partition your data, which is uh, you should not be hashing by the number of nodes. Like oh, the number of computers involved. This was this this part was so great. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't considered it before. Um, I don't think I've ever seen it partitioned that way. But um, number of nodes changes. Right. Sometimes you'll add another. Sometimes one will go down either temporarily or permanently. And every time you do that, if you're hashing by the number of nodes, then you're going to be moving data around a ton. And I didn't even realize how much it was until I looked at some of the examples in the books. Uh, in the book and it said you know obviously if you're going from one partition to two uh, at a minimum you're you know moving 50 percent of your data right so uh what i didn't understand is even if you have say a hundred nodes and you've got a key i'm just going to pick one of 1000 and you drop a node so you go down to 99 well a thousand mod 99 uh is hashes to one as opposed to zero so you've got to move that record what if we went to 102 well, that hashes to node four. So now the key of 1000 needs to go to four. If we uh, go to 103 nodes, guess what? It's moving again. So you are constantly juggling a ton of data, way more than you would think every time you change the number of nodes, which is a ton of work. And all you need is for one part of your network to be slow to respond for yes. the rest of the nodes to think, oh, we just lost a node. Time to repartition the data. 
Yep. And so, yeah, you have that, that, what do you call it, stampeding cattle, or uh, I forget what they call it. But basically, uh, the problem just blows out of proportion because now it starts adding nodes really quickly because it sees the system is not performant. Now the rebalancing has gotten out of control and it's just taking forever across all these nodes that are moving all this data, which causes the need for more nodes. Yeah. I hadn't heard of that term before. Yeah, is, that, we, is that really what it's uh, called? Stamp- I probably got it wrong. Stampeding herd. Huh. Problem. Interesting. I mean, I could totally see it, though. Like it, it, it definitely spirals out of control fast. Um, so yeah, I can't remember now. Oh, but you know, if you remember, uh, audience, then leave a comment because uh, we're giving away copies of the book. Forgot to oh, mention yeah, that. I forgot. Dang. Yeah, which means I need to give away the last episode. All right. Take a note. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, there's some there's some cool name for it, and we've talked about it on the show before. I'm sure if you heard it, you'd know it. Um. But yeah, so that is the one thing that the book cautions you very strongly. Like, do not do this because you're tying yourself to the number of nodes and you're going to be moving data a lot more often than you might think. It's counterintuitive. Well, the thing the thing is that I never thought about, you know, partitioning it that way only because, like, I guess, like, I never had to, you know, think about it. But um it was like when I read that, I was like, well, I could definitely see why somebody might be tempted to want to partition it that way. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, well, Hey, I, I have 10 nodes. Let me just uh, partition it evenly across my 10 nodes. So whatever your key is, I'll just mod that. And you know, that's where you fall. And, uh, you know, but it, like, as you said, as you, as that comes and goes, then, you know, as your nodes come and go, then it would, it, it would really cause problems for your, your data. And like yeah, constantly and luckily, having to move it around. And that's where like that sand idea was like coming into play here during this thing. Cause I was like, well, I guess it wouldn't be too bad if it was all, if you were able to live in a world where like everything could share the underlying disk struct- structure and because it's all fiber, then it could be super fast, but that's not the real world, you know, more often mm-hmm. than not. Yeah. And you know, luckily I've never fallen into this, but I could see myself being in a case where Kafka, where like, let's say I've started a small project with Kafka and, uh, if, you know, let's just say for example purposes, I've got one broker. I could see myself having one partition for my topic that I care about. And then I add another broker. Well, now I should go ahead and add another partition. And adding partitions in Kafka, ch- changing those partitions is painful. You basically have to kind of rerun everything through and it's, it's slow and it's a problem. And you got to pick one to swap over and you've got data coming in in the meantime. And it's just a pain. And, it's and actually so, uh, like not even advisable, by the way. Yeah. Like it's yeah. actually. If you really wanted to do that, the way to do it in Kafka <clears throat> would be to the the more the more advisable way to do it would be to set up an entirely separate topic that is partitioned the way you want and then just parallel your rights to both topics and then swap over to the new one as you can because otherwise you'd have to reread the original topic from the beginning of time to rekey it. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah to get the data spread across that partition as the way you would want it. And even with the idea that I mentioned with the sand though, too, where that, like that kind of falls apart is um, that only works if you're able to take the partition as is, but in this rebalancing portion of the book, we're talking about like you're taking, like go back to your example. I think you used with um, H base or couch base. I forget which one you said, but where like you went from one to two nodes and you were like literally, you know, rewriting 50% of the data because you're physically like moving the the data from one part of the 
of from one partition to another partition, even if it, even if you did have access to the same discs, you're still moving it to a different part of the disc. So you'd still have yeah. the IO expense there. So yeah, that's a really good point. You know, yeah. And I should mention that when you go from two to three, it's not a 30% of the data that's moving. It's, you have to move 30% of the data, but then also you've, you're rejiggering the data on the nodes that you just dropped that data from in order to kind of take up that space. You're, you're, you're a hundred percent. You're writing to a hundred percent of the records, even if you're only writing tombstones to 30% of it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Cause you're, you're constantly moving bits around. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, you can't just leave these giant holes of zombies. You know, you have to fill that stuff in or otherwise you don't get the benefits of uh, the other kind of lookups. And depending on like the underlying technology too, you might have compaction that would eventually kick in to pay based on the amount of data. So which would likely just result in rewriting the entire uh, smaller portion of it. So that's where you get into that hundred percent thing. Like, yeah, it really grows out of control depending on what you're trying to do. I, it, yeah. And it was surprising too, that like, some of the systems they talked about here, like actually have this capability, like as a built-in feature. And I think I'd mentioned, I'd alluded to it before. I think it was like HBase, maybe was one of them, where it could it could dynamically uh, expand or contract the partitions yep. based on a file size limitation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, HBase rethink were the examples, uh, and apparently Mongo has an option for it, um, which is really cool. Uh, yeah. Certainly. Yeah. Uh, no typo. Yeah. So um, the the Kafka example going back there real quick. I wanted to point out that um, if you um, if you care about the ordering of the events, you have to fully copy that data to the new topic before taking anything new into the new topic. So it's almost like you're going to have some downtime there. Then there's no automatic way to do it because Kafka knows that this is a terrible operation and they don't want you to do it. And, but I could see myself naively getting in that situation where I had one node, I have one partition. Why not? Add another node. Well, crap. I got to do that expensive operation. Fine. And we add a third one. Now I'm realizing the error of my ways. But is there something I could have done to prevent that situation? And the answer is yes. The uh, widely kind of um, accepted solution to that problem is to have uh, a number of partitions that is greater than your nodes. How many partitions are you going to have? How many nodes are you going to, you know, end up with? <laughs> That's a hard problem because you you have to play a guessing game that you have to kind of guess at how many nodes you could forcibly have in some kind of imaginable future and then come up with a number of partitions that's greater than that. And there's a huge benefit here, which is that you don't have to uh, write individual records when things move. You have to write individual partitions. So in the case where we say we have one node, and let's say it's got 10 partitions on it for a single you know, topic or a, a, database, a, a data table or a collection, whatever, on the database. Now, when we uh, add a second node, we have to move half of our partitions over there, which is much easier than going record by record because we've got these things already kind of you know, split off. And so we can move those partitions and it's a, a much, uh, much easier move. You know, you can, you were, you were, we were talking earlier about like, uh, you know, if you only ever like what your value of this book might be, if you only stayed in one technology and whatnot. And I can think back to like some of my earlier experiences with Kafka, um, which prior to reading this book and like when it would come time to where like I would want to repartition things, I'm like, why is this so complicated? I don't understand why it doesn't just support this. Like, why is this such a, such a hassle? And now I'm like, yep, totally get it. Totally yep. makes sense to me now. 
Yeah, I, yeah, I remember us running into that problem, just being like, uh, just come, like kind of mad at it. It's like, what do you mean yeah. you don't have a way for me to change this? Like, that's such an obvious feature that anyone would want. And then yep. you, when you start digging through it, it's like, oh, there's actually a bunch of trade-offs and there's some decisions that you you almost you like you need to have a manual process there because there's things that they can't do for you yeah and it's kind of like um your comment a moment ago that made me think about this because you'd said like where the they're you know trying to prevent you from doing things so like kind of going full circle right like you know uh interfaces are you know eyes for interface episode right and and those being like guardrails but you could kind of extract the same concept of like whatever technology you pick in this case, like a Kafka, for example, is your, your, that's your guardrail. And they're trying to prevent you from doing certain operations that they've deemed to be inefficient for their use case. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, no, we don't support that. If you want to do it, you're going to have to go through some pain to make that happen. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, that, that example that we started with, where we said, we've got, um, you know, seven years, uh, Retention for credit card transactions. Um, sorry, I'm typing while I'm, I'm uh, updating my, my notes here. Uh, so we said seven years uh, partitioning. If you're going from 10 nodes to 11, well, okay, so you're going to have to go through those partitions and figure out, you know, roughly 10% of them are going to need to move. But that 90%, those other partitions, you don't have to touch them. You don't have to think about them. They're out of the equation. If we didn't have this case where the number of partitions was higher than the nodes, we'd be looking at every piece of data which is just awful yeah and what if you have more nodes than partitions right what if uh you know you had thousands of nodes in that case well i mean would it even have to be that extreme it could just be like you have three nodes and two partitions yeah then you're not using all of your nodes yeah, absolutely. So you're going to have nodes that just aren't doing anything. They have no data on them. Yeah, just a waste yeah. of money. Yep. And so, uh, say most vendors don't actually support it, and so it just it's you know not even sensical in most cases. Kafka, you can absolutely do that. Oh yeah. And uh, you, there's a couple of different cases where you know like consumers, producers, like you care about partitions. And uh, the only thing I can say there is that sometimes uh, you'll want to over provision, and so uh, you know it's kind of avoids like a cold start. Uh, problem and um one kind of use case i thought of here is like if you're launching a big video game that's a big online video game say like you know call of duty 2022 is coming out and uh, you know that you're going to be going from zero users to a million users in a for in an hour right that could be a really rough scale build problem and so you can do some kind of paper napkin math and say you know what let's go ahead and pre-provision 100 nodes and just have them ready and we'll pre-provision a certain number of partitions that are greater than that number of nodes. And so that when people start coming online, uh, we can, you know, start balancing that stuff out better. And so it avoids this kind of uh, problem. I skipped ahead there. It, it. it is kind of the downside to that, though, to that pre-provisioning, though, is it does it flies smack in the face of like horizontal scalability. Right. So like if you go back to your like you put your Kubernetes hat on. Right. And you want to think of like, well you know, I want elasticity here. So like, if I don't need a hundred nodes, then I don't want to have to pre-provision those, but specifically to pick on Kafka for a moment, you know, the things that I've read about Kafka provisioning is you, the advice is to architect the system for the next two years. So don't think about your needs today. 
but what your needs are going to be in two years. That's what you need to, that's how you need to architect your, your topics and brokers and replication factor and whatnot, right. And the number of partitions and, you know, uh, so you have to like really think through your use case and, and think through like what, where you think you might be in two years or where you expect to be within two years. And then that's the way you should size your Kafka environment. So you're definitely, you know, that cold start problem, as you mentioned it, like you're, you're definitely heavily front loading it and, you know, to, to avoid uh, future problems. So that because yeah. Kafka has those limitations about like how you can, uh, Oh gosh, I need to repartition things. And, you know, so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, um, so yeah, it's, it kind of flies in the face of all this stuff. I mean, we spend so much time talking about like this ability to dynamically scale things. And this is a case where you're like, whoa, whoa, <laughs> step back a little bit, uh, cold start serious. Like you want to put some thought into these systems ahead of time, which is unfortunate, but, uh, you know, when, after we talk about this stuff, it makes a lot more sense. I mean, date serving data is so much harder than, um, serving a website, right? Because, or like HTML, because you know, anytime you have to deal with state, just like think back to like everything we've ever talked about with unit tests, for example, like anything that doesn't involve state is super simple, right? It's super simple to write unit tests about. It's super simple to scale it. Cause you're like, Oh, well just, you know, if I have a thousand of them, then it's going to, you know, be a thousand times more performant. But anytime you have to deal with state, which is all data is, it's like, infinitely more difficult to work with yeah and there's um there's been talk about um scale to zero systems like uh we talk about like serverless um functions and things like that sometimes uh, they'll talk about basically having service that's free until you need it and then you pay for the usage and uh that's really hard to do i think uh, a lot of people don't realize how hard it is to do because you need to start somewhere and it takes time to get up to speed so going from zero to thousands of requests per second that's really tough. And you're probably going to lose a lot of those first requests. You just can't accelerate that fast because there's overhead. And then it's easy to accelerate too much. And now you're spending too much money. And so scaling all the way down is really tough and scaling fast is tough. Yeah. Scaling is tough. Well, so why don't we just have a million partitions, right? And then we don't have to worry about, it. we just create way more than we need. And then we never have to worry about it. Well, the downside there is that there's overhead. Yeah. And we kind of talked about that on the last episode. Again, I, I keep picking on Kafka here because I keep thinking of this book. Uh, you know, I keep putting on my Kafka hat as I read through it, but the specific example that I gave last time was that for each partition within that directory, you actually get at least two files. So then, you know, depending on your operating system, there is a limitation on the number of files that you could have written onto the disk, which in uh, Linux, you can actually configure that. Um, but then there's the, the overhead of just having the file handle open itself. You know, there's, there's some memory overhead to just related to that. So, you know, you can run into problems if you, you yep. know, if you try to have those million partitions, uh, you know, it's actually, there's an amplica- amplification factor to think, to consider because each partition is actually a couple files. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we mentioned too, like if you're, um, rebalancing, right, uh, it's really nice to have partitions, uh, greater than the number of nodes because you only have to look at subsets of your data. On the flip side, if you imagine the, the, uh, you know, the alternate strategy, like have no, effectively no partitioning. Each record is its own partition, right? That's the extreme, you know, other end of it. That's the same as looking at every piece of data. It's like you have completely mitigated the benefits of partitioning at all 
by having one partition for every record. And so you've got to try to find that sweet spot and it depends on your use cases, obviously. But uh, I just want to point out that you can't just pick a huge number and go with it and be safe. Yeah. You, you, it really helps to know your use case, know your data and, and go from there. Like even in, um, I'm not sure like how this works from an elastic scaling perspective, but like, um, I've never thought about this way related to like SQL server or, you know, Postgres or anything like that. But like specifically in the Kafka world, you, you actually want to think about it in terms of, you know, bytes. You want to, you want to think about it in terms of like size of what you're going to be transmitting back and forth and what your latency is going to be required to that, uh, that transfer. And so you then size it based on, on that. Mm-hmm. But I never, I've never thought about like sizing a SQL server or a Postgres or anything else like that. Have you? No, definitely not. And yeah. I, I kind of wonder. Um, I wonder if part of that is because Kafka, uh, it kind of, it kind of views things as like chunks of data. So like, as it writes, you know, writes stuff in, it writes it to contiguous um, space on the on disk. Um, so it's almost like a big buffer, and it keeps track of where the individual like you know, offsets are for each individual message. It's got like a separate point. It says like, I know file one starts here, file two starts there. Um, so it kind of throws that stuff in as a big blob and then figures it out later when you ask for it. Kind of reminds me of like the deli counter of like a Publix or something like that, where you go and you order a pound of cheese or a pound of meat or something. And they go through and they slice, 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 slice. So like the, the data is stored together as that big hunk. And then you come in and say, well, Hey, give me a pound or give me 10 slices or whatever. And it can do that. Now I want some deli cheese. Thanks. I know. And you know, that is really like how the consumers work in Kafka too. It's funny. Um, they don't say, um, like traditional queuing systems. This is total tangent, but traditional queuing systems, you might say like, Hey, give me a record and I'll do something with it. With Kafka, you generally told it, um, to pull based on a latching system. So you say like, Hey, give me either some number of messages or some amount of time and then I'll stop. So the consumer will say, mm, I'll take a thousand or 10 seconds, whichever com- comes first. And then it'll get that big chunk of data because, like we said, Kafka stores stuff, stuff in this kind of chunks. And it'll just kind of slice off as much as you want, um, subdivide it by and as necessary based on like the offsets. And then there you go. You're, there's your data. But that's a big part of like why Kafka works so well and why it works so well in low latency environments is it's um, really good at dealing with chunks of data. And because of that, they think of it in terms of data size much more so than actual files because it's not a whole bunch of little files on disk. It's like one big one. Which goes back to what I was talking about with the sizing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Like, like I know, I, like I ended up creating a whole, I called it the Kafka calculator um, in order to like size, to figure out like how to size a given environment based on, you know, number of connections in and out and clients and expected data size and what kind of latency you wanted, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I'm not the only person that has done something like that for their particular mm-hmm. usage of Kafka. Cause at the time, when I was trying to work on sizing Kafka, like there were other people that had done similar things, uh, you know, to size it. Cause it is very specific to, you know, what kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the size of data that you're going to use and, and to, you know, to your point about wanting to serve it in contiguous blocks. So, yeah, that was really great. Uh, there were definitely things that assumptions that were wrong. And if we didn't have that calculator, it was really hard to know like how you ended up with those numbers you did. So if you come back and say, Oh, you know what? My average message, message size is actually, uh, seven kilobytes, not five. It, it's not going to change things by, you know, five, seven divided by five percent. It's going to 
be much more uh, dramatic than that. And so it was crazy to see just how much the numbers would change based on one piece of information. Yeah. And, and like given, depending on what your storage technology is, like they'll have like, you know, a recommendation for like, Hey, you know, any given node should be no more. It should be responsible for no more than this amount of, of data or, you know, throughput or whatnot. And so that's definitely true in Kafka. They, they have like recommendations for, you know, uh, topics and partitions to be spread apart so that no broker is responsible for more than a certain number of partitions in an ideal situation. And, uh, you know, you, you, you can start to, especially if you were to like live in a world where you're creating partitions or I'm sorry, topics on the fly. Um, you know, maybe as like, uh, Hey, Joe just signed up for my new service. So I'm going to go spin off, uh, these five topics related to Joe and then, you know, now your service becomes wildly popular and you're spinning off five topics for every u- new user that signs up to your service, then uh, it can grow out of control fast. And that's where like this whole file handle thing comes into play um, mm-hmm. because, you know, now you're at the scale of Facebook and you have three billion, three or four billion concurrent users a day logging in, you know, uh, it can it can get out of control quickly if you don't think about it up front. Yeah, and even just adding five topics is a lot of work. So you get a new customer, you add five topics. Uh, let's say they've got 10 partitions in each topic, which is like a, a fairly normal number. And then a replication factor of three. So each uh, each one of those partitions is replicated three times. Well, uh, we just added 150. Um, wait, did I do that right? <laughs> it's going to be five times 10 times three. Yeah, so 150 uh, partitions to our system, which is, woo, that adds up fast, right? Just for each customer. Yep. All right. Well, uh, what about rebalancing? So we've talked about hotspotting a little bit, and uh, we talked about a few times about HBase, about how uh, it's really good about kind of uh, automatically, uh, dynamically. I skip a section. I did. Oh, I mean, kind of. I mean, we've yeah. talked about dynamic partitioning uh, already. We've kind of hinted at it about like, yep. you know, uh, because the ter- trying to determine the number of partitions up front can be difficult. Uh, some systems will allow you to do it dynamically. So I think we had yep. mentioned like HBase and rethink were a couple examples of that. Yeah. I wanted to point out that it's uh, really important to know that there's no magic algorithm that they're using to like split your load up, like super intelligently. They're just kind of slicing it up like in, in kind of chunks. And so you add a new node and say, all right, you get half. And they'll move that stuff over. And it's really nice that you don't have to think about it. It scales really well. Uh, Cassandra um, has an interesting way of uh, doing some partitioning as well because it's got the whole like leaderless uh, architecture that deals really well with like adding new nodes and uh, being available even when nodes disappear. Uh, And so uh, it's a different use case there, but it just uh, handles things really well, well there. But there's no magic. Like ultimately, it's doing some kind of dumb math in order just to figure that out. Well, which might work against you though, because, because yep. if all of it's, if, if all it's doing is just splitting it based on, well, the file size has now reached some maximum. So I'm going to give half to this one and half to the other one. It could give, you know, one, one, the new node could get half, the half of the data that the new node gets could be the half that's most heavily requested. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if, if all it did was just simply divide it in half. Right. Yeah, and the cold start problem is really bad there too. You know, like your launch Call of Duty 2022 and HBase starts out at zero and then it fills up really quickly and it splits in two. 
and then those fill up. Yeah. And it just keeps going. They, they did talk about like in the, in this portion of the book though, where for that specific problem where like even in the automatic world or the dynamic partitioning world where you would probably want to go ahead and start it out with some minimum that you thought would be reasonable so that you don't get into that a stampede problem that you referred to earlier. <clears throat> yep, absolutely. And so, yeah, we talked about, we just talked about uh, systems that automatically rebalance and, you know, we talked about the, the kind of downside there. It is really nice if you have workloads that are really like well homogenized or known and, uh, you know, it doesn't grow too quickly and you don't have like hot spotting issues. And so that's really nice for that. Um, but if you do have um, situations where you really want to protect your system, so like maybe you want to not rebalance until off hours because you don't want to uh, cause unnecessary strain on your system. Uh, or, you know, we talked about that video game launch where you want to kind of scale up ahead of time where you've got stuff over provisioned for a period of time because you expect to get a, a really quick flood. And so, um, you know, there's just considerations there where whether you even want it to be automatic or not. And then some systems, they mentioned Couchbase, React, and Voldemort will sub, uh, suggest the partition assignment, but they won't do it. So they kind of wait for you to hit the enter key there in, in order to make sure it happens at a good time that you're around in case something bad starts happening. Like nodes start reporting as unresponsive because they're rebalancing and then you don't want to end up in a situation where things go off the rails. Yeah. Now, now we're getting into the really fun part though, where it's turtles all the way down, Yeah, <clears throat> which was the request routing part. So yep. I'm going to throw this out there. And then you tell me, like, as we go through this, if this is kind of what you were thinking of. But basically, uh, we're talking about uh, at, at the large front it was just like service discovery. But I was thinking about this from like a Kubernetes point of view, where I'm like, well, you have the the Kubernetes service that could be that could be like the the front for like it could be the load balancer across multiple of these things, right? But then any one of those things might now then be the front for like it's given nodes or partitions. Cause like, you know, if the, if the service is pointing to like, say five brokers, but each one of those brokers is, you know, Oh, well here's the nodes, you know, like it's doing its own little service discovery within it. So it was, that's where it was like turtles all the way down because there was like, uh, even at a physical network layer. And then within the, once you get to a particular node and then, you know, to how you would get to a visual file system, this whole request routing concept, you know? Uh, so with all that said now, like just keep that in the back of your mind and then yep. we get into this section. Yeah. So we talked about having a database for your database and then the database for your indexes. And now we're talking about having a database of, uh, <laughs> stuff is yeah and then maybe having uh something like a zookeeper in the background to keep track of uh you know kind of that communication there see and we all thought we all thought we were being clever when we made a meme out of exhibit and it turned out he was really on to something like he knew yep. he knew all of this well before we ever did <laughs> yeah he knows he knew <laughs> yeah and i remember um one of the first things uh, when we first got started with kafka that i was like really frustrated with is like i want to get started with kafka you download a docker compose file it's got like eight different systems like this is terrible. This is such a, this is such a bad database. And now I kind of uh, understand more about it. It's like, Oh, you know, actually it's leveraging these really smart systems that do like these really important things. And it's kind of cool to be able to see those moving parts there and to be able to scale them independently. And so it kind of exposes more of the gears than like a traditional kind of relational database. So you can see you know, the parts of the engine, but now that I know more about it, it's really cool to kind of see all that stuff being there. Yeah. It, it's not so cool when you don't want to be the mechanic though. Well, yeah. like, I just wanted the yeah. engine. I, why, why do I need to know all this stuff? 
I'm just trying to hello world here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And this is kind of an instance of a more general problem here that you'll see uh, in just distributed systems called service discovery, which is how do I know when new things are coming in and out? Like if if services can kind of scale themselves up and down independently and users are doing deploys and systems are just crashing, like how do I know as a client what, like what the heck's going on and who I should even be talking to? And uh, so specifically referring to partitioning, there's a couple different ways to solve this. Um, first is that nodes keep track of each other, which is, you know, uh, almost like an anarchist kind of like hippie view of the world here. Or you just talk to any node and that node knows where else you need to go to. So you can kind of imagine each node is responsible for doing routing. So you just you just as long as you know one, that one can eventually get you to others because yeah, it just kind of propagates in a nice little mesh. And that's like how Cassandra kind of works in like a leaderless situation where it's just very, uh, very resilient and high, highly available. Um, so that works out really well. And eventually the clients can kind of figure out, um, you know, more information about those nodes and keep track of them. And eventually if it can't get to one, well, it can try another one in the list and it'll just make it happen somehow. It, it, of course, I'm going to go back to my, my uh, canonical reference for this because it made me wonder if like, that's what Kafka is moving to because uh-huh. um, Kafka uh, I'm skipping ahead here a little bit, but Kafka has traditionally relied on another Apache project called zookeeper to, to handle that type of requesting to know like what node you needed to go to for a given partition. But um, I haven't looked at it recently to see like if it was implemented yet, but I know that Kafka was uh, had an open, you know, uh, issue where that they, they, they were planning to iterate towards where they were going to remove their dependency on a zookeeper. And so I don't know if the underlying, if they were planning to go to this Cassandra kind of modeled where like every broker would know, like, so you could just connect to any one of them and you'd be like, Oh no, you need to go talk to my friend over here. Go talk to broker number one. Yeah, I haven't looked really closely at, at how they're doing that. I know it's ultimately stored in Kafka. So it's like kind of Kafka on Kafka there. But yeah, I don't know how that uh, how that works. I, traditionally, they had a bootstrap service that you could talk to that was aware of all the other nodes. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know what's I don't know what's happening there. Yeah, I know. Uh, originally, when I first started working with Elastic and just kind of experimenting, like before kind of pre Docker world, if you wanted to spin up like two nodes locally, you'd have to tell them about each other. So you'd have like a host file entry, for example, on your computer and with like Elastic 1, Elastic 2. And then the configurations for Elastic 1, you'd say, hey, there's also another node named Elastic 2. And for Elastic 2, you have to tell about Elastic 1. And if you add a third, guess what? You have to go in and update that configuration and restart the Elasticsearch service. So now it knows about three. And that's how you would bring things up online. And I don't know if it still works that way. You know, like for all I know, the like Kubernetes operators or whatever kind of just doing that stuff in the background or if a service comes up and it kind of goes out and looks like, you know, hey, y'all, uh, I'm scouring your network for, you know, I don't, I don't know how that works. But I like presume it was it's just doing an still- in-map and like who who responds to what port. Yeah, which sounds crazy. It's probably not doing that. It seems uh, you'd like almost it. dangerous. Yeah, you'd, yeah hope, you'd hope it doesn't do it that way. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds it, like a huge security flaw. Yeah. Yeah, I worked on a feature for a backup software at one point. We called it resource discovery. It was basically the same thing. It would go out and look for systems that needed, like, that knew how to back up. Uh, now thinking back though, it's like crazy to think like, we would just all look through everything I could see on your network 
for, um, I don't know, Active Directory or SQL servers or Exchange servers. I'll just go look for those and then try to set up uh, backups on them. <laughs> it's like, ooh, <laughs> you should probably not have your network like open up to, uh, you know, any software that can just kind of go in and start messing with this data. But yeah, that was fun. Oh, yeah. So the second approach, we, we talked about the you nodes know, just knowing of each other. The second one is the centralized routing service that the clients know about. And that's like the bootstrap service that I mentioned. So you go, you, as long as you know how to get to the bootstrap service and the bootstrap service knows how to get everywhere else. And sometimes this is called out explicitly. Like we mentioned in Kafka, like you would typically set up literally a service called bootstrap service or sometimes it's kind of hidden behind something else. Uh, and so like, uh, I think Mongo is one of the ones that kind of has this, um, this other system kind of set aside that does it. That they kind of, um, mask away but when you put together your connection string for getting to the database it that's the address that you use i was thinking of the master n- node in elastic in that case yep absolutely yep so you, if you have one master or multiple master either ways like that's what the client talks to the client should not be directly talking to any data nodes yeah and you know unless the master said these are the ones you need to know about well even then though like you, you, the master doesn't route you to the client the master abstracts that right i'm not sure i don't know i I think it kind of hides it from you so i don't i don't know okay yeah that's a good question uh i don't know how i get i'm so bad with networking stuff too like even look load balancers like i feel like i've looked up how load balancers work like a dozen times but i still think about it like so wait when i talk to load balancer does it like funnel the traffic through it and back out or does it tell me about the ip but then how does that work if and my brain explodes well that's why i was like as i said it though i was like oh, i can't do that it has to like throw you over to the to the node right because otherwise that would mean yeah. that that one master becomes the um the bottleneck for all io in and out of that storage out of that that index right which can't be that would be yep. that sounds awful but maybe i'm wrong and it totally does work that way I don't know. Let us, let us know. You might win a book. Yeah. Yeah. Enter, yeah, enter a comment on in on, uh, you can go to, uh, codingblocks.net slash episode 172 and you can leave us a comment and, uh, you'll be entered in for a chance to win a copy of the book. Yeah. I'm taking another, uh, note here for load balancers networking. We should do an episode on that. So I know what the heck I'm talking about. Yeah. So, uh, in well, general, yeah, There's exactly. So Talk about turtles all the way down, man. Oh gosh. Yeah, no, no kidding. Yeah, let me change how get into all the different layers of of networking. Do you know? Do you know yeah. the different layers? The seven OSI. Whatever. Well, I didn't mean the numbers. Oh, <laughs> yeah. There's like, like application layer. You're talking about right? Like uh, application, the hardware layer. Yeah, I, I might be able to figure it out, but uh, network translation. I doubt that I'll be able to get all seven. Um, but you you, but, you started off pretty good though that you knew that there were seven so you know kudos good well fact. i haven't yeah i i don't know how any of it works aside from it's like one of those things that like i just happened to hear like once and for some reason my brain just like remembered that but i've never actually used it and like i never i don't know how to put it into practice or make use of that information yeah definitely it, it's one of those things that every time i hear it i'm like okay yeah that sounds cool that makes sense and I want to try to remember that, but I never use it. And so therefore, because I don't put it into practice, I always forget it. Yeah, exactly. Like, well, and what are the seven layers again? And we in the brain. Is layer five really never comes into play <laughs> or, you know, whatever. Yeah, exactly. I, so it's like uh, that. And it's like stored in my brain right next to like the Pokemon theme song. We're like, 
if I start singing it, I can do it. Or the alphabet, I can sing the song. But, you know, if I, you want me to use the letters, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> okay. I'm, so I'm not the only one that, like, when you were, like, trying to think of a, a particular part of the alphabet, you, like, instinctively, like, the song replays in your head. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> or if you ever tried to, um, someone like asks you a password, or you're telling someone a password that you uh, type often, uh, and you don't have a keyboard, so you're like, um, it's the index figure uh, H, <laughs> uh, and the next one is, uh, you have to almost like kind of type it out to remember what the password is. Uh, so <laughs> we've had a couple ways to solve it. So the nodes keep track of each other. The other was a centralized routing service. There is one other, which is the client be aware of every single node and partitioning data, which sounds crazy. I don't know anyone. I don't know any system that actually does that, but you could see, you know, presumably the, the clients all just keep track of it. And so a new system comes online. Someone has to go out and say, Hey, client, here's another, uh, system that you need to talk to. Uh, you know, just keep that in your back pocket for when you need to. And whenever that gets removed or added, someone goes out to all the clients and lets them know, like, you know, that's been removed. I wonder I'm if that happens more in like a, I'm thinking like a Splunk or something where it's not so much like a necessarily a database, but like, I don't know, someone has to go in and actually configure these nodes to kind of talk to, uh, you know, almost like agents that talk to different services. Uh, I don't know. I was trying to think through of like an example of that and just coming up blank though of an example where the client knows. What well, about DNS? okay. Okay. I guess, I guess, um, I kind of, I kind of, I do remember now as I was reading this book that like the one thing that did kind of come to mind of this is that, <laughs> gosh, I, I got to stop talking about Kafka because, um, the, the client does kind of know like based on the key, like, oh, this is where that's going to go. Yeah. So and the producer there, has to know and the consumer has to know. Yeah, there is some awareness there. But I don't, I don't, but, but the way you said it though made me think of like a totally different world. Like you bring in a new, a new one and you're like, got to reach back out to the clients and say like, oh, hey, clients, we've added a new one. Yeah, definitely something you would not want to do if, you know, often. So if changes happen a lot, but I thought maybe DNS would be an example where like you're bringing a new uh, DNS server online. Or you're changing your DNS servers, then you would probably go into each, uh, you know, node or agent or computer, add the new systems, and then eventually, after it's transitioned, you'd remove the old ones. Mm. But that like happens never, <laughs> and hopefully you're not. You, uh, I don't know. Uh, I guess you do use IP addresses for DNS servers, right? Yeah. So, because otherwise <laughs> you'd be in trouble. <laughs> you know, if you had to like look up your DNS servers via DNS. But yeah, off the rails. So yeah, that, that's the only thing I can think of. And the book doesn't give any examples of it. Um, but no matter which way you go, uh, partitioning no changes need to be applied somehow. And it's really difficult to get right. Even though it sounds like it's, you know, just another database. And this is where Zookeeper comes in, which is a oops, really popular uh, system for keeping track of configurations. It's really resilient. Um, it's used with a ton of other Apache um, systems and just used all over the place for doing things like this or for coordinating. But you don't normally talk to Zookeeper uh, directly. Like it's not your routing service, but it's the thing that's in charge of updating the routing service or that the, the routing service will pull for changes. Uh, and so it's just a really resilient key value store that you'll see 
used a lot of projects. And like we mentioned, Kafka uses a Druid, uh, Solar, um, MongoDB has something similar. So it's just a really popular tool. It's really basic, but uh, apparently it's really hard. And because, you know, one thing that's really important about it is if it's storing changes about what other nodes and services are available, it also has to keep track of its own because it's not like it can defer to some other system. It's the authority. So if one zookeeper node goes down, it needs to still be able to function. And, you know, we've, we've talked about different problems with kind of network uh, partitionings or bad things that can happen. Like Zookeeper really needs to be able to weather all of those storms. It's like the single point of failure for a lot of these systems. So then you end up with a Zookeeper cluster yep. to keep up with. So it really does. It really does become like another, a whole other cluster to maintain an index to tell you how to get to the, your main index and what part of that cluster you need to go to to read it. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, it's funny. It's like turtles all the way down. But it's like, I don't really trust my cluster. So I'm going to come up with a, another cluster that will yeah. keep track of the nodes that are in that cluster. So in case it's, the first one goes down. Again, exhibit comes to mind. You're like, yo, dog, I heard you like clusters. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, the idea is that they keep the functionality, like the, the, the feature set really limited. Just really, really, really focus on being uh, you know as close to perfect as possible and so that zookeeper keeps the uh keeps the zoo in line and uh so cassandra and react use a gossip protocol we mentioned uh, about nodes keeping track of each other so they they kind of do these things where they're constantly chatting about uh chatting to each other saying like hey do you know i'm a node (laughs) you're a node do you know any other nodes i don't know about like they're kind of playing go fish or something had you heard change that information had you heard of this gossip protocol a little before. bit when we talked, um, like we, you know, Datastax uh, sponsored show a while back, uh, and we got a, kind of a tour of how they work in Cassandra, and so we spent a little bit of time there looking at it. So I read a little bit about it then. I thought it was, it's, it sounds cool, and that's where you know I said I mentioned that like feeling almost like hippie-ish with like leaderists, and um, it, it just seems it, it. I don't know. The whole spirit of Cassandra is just really cool and different to me, and so I, I'd read a little bit about it then. Yeah, I just it's not like a term you come across a lot. So I, I really liked it. Cause I was like, well, it truly is what it is. Cause it's like, you know, yeah, I heard that there's this other, this other node over here called node three, but you know, by the time you go to get to node three, it could already be down. So that's yeah. why it's not like authoritative. It's just, it might still be there. I don't know. Yeah. It's pretty funny to think about these nodes kind of ch- you know, chatting over playing cards or whatever. Like it's like, Oh, hey, Alice, haven't seen you in a while. How's it going? He's like, all right. You know, I just met a new friend named Fred the other day, but oh, Nathan, uh, Nathan's not around anymore. And it's like, okay, well, thanks for that update. Uh, I'll see you later. Wow, you took that to a dark place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's how it goes. Like, haven't heard from Nathan in a while. It's like, oh, yeah, me either. Mm. <laughs> wow, your examples, man. Yeah, we'll, we'll take him off the list, I guess. Do you not have enough sunshine in your life? Like, you're in the sunshine state, right? Oh, wait, no, that's yeah. Colorado. Is it Colorado? You're, well, they get the most sunshine, right? Is, yeah. What's the Florida tagline? It's the sunshine state. Oh, is it? Yeah, but, but uh, yeah, it rains a ton here, so I've always uh, had issue with that. There's actually, there's a home video of me being like 11, thinking I'm funny, talking about how much rain Florida gets. Like, what's the, what's the Jerry Seinfeld kind of like... There's some joke about like, why do they call it the, anyway, I was I doing that know. whole thing. I, I thought, I thought that, um, I thought Colorado is considered the sunshine state cause it gets the most sunshine of any 
any state like 330 days a year of sunshine or something like that versus, you know, Seattle that gets 30. Yeah. Well, I guess- so, uh, I looked up the nickname for each state. Apparently there's a, like some official nickname, Colorado. They call the centennial state hmm. and Florida. They call the sunshine state, even though uh, Colorado gets more sunshine. <laughs> it's not fair. Yeah. But they get the cold that you don't have to deal with. So there you go. Yeah, Florida officially adopted the nickname in 1970. But it, like apparently, like one of the suggested search terms for Google is, "What's the real Sunshine State?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So yeah, the gossip protocol. Yeah. Um. So and then we already mentioned though that like like Elasticsearch has different roles uh, that nodes can have. So you mentioned there was the master, there was the data, the ingestion, and then uh, a routing node yep and uh from there there's just one other thing i wanted to mention on real quickly or hit on which is parallel query execution so so far when we've been talking about things you know primary indexes looking things up by key or secondary indexes uh looking things up by these secondary data stores um those you know kind of fit well like the NoSQL paradigm but that's far from the only game in town and so uh the book brings up massively parallel processing relational databases mpp and uh, these are kind of relational databases that have really complex, like joining situations, like filtering and aggregations, and uh, excluding this or excluding that. And really, joins is the big thing to me there. Uh, so, how does that work? And that's where we got our old friend Query Optimizer, who's responsible for taking these big complex query expressions, like select this from that, join this, um, order by that. And it's responsible for breaking them down into stages that can be run independently. And then ultimately kind of going through and joining those stages together and filtering to get the the final results. But when you think about it that way, you're like, well, hey, all this is really doing is it's taking that complex expression and generating a bunch of individual stages, just like the ones we've talked about that use primary indexes and secondary indexes. Or, you know, ultimately, if those aren't available, it does full table scans going through every record in the partition that it's got set up. Well, hey, we just described everything we talked about. So you can just kind of think about these massively parallel processing relational databases as everything we've talked about today, but just up one level where it's able to break them down into these components and then ultimately put them together. And the really cool thing there is that in addition to breaking them down, these are all independent stages so we can run them at the same time. So if we take a, you know, a, a query where you're joining a few things and filtering and sorting and uh, you know, only grabbing these three columns or whatever. It might break that down into 12 stages and maybe the first four can be run in parallel. Then we do something with those results to bring them back together. And then we can run the other eight stages in parallel from there and then put those two pieces of information together. So there's a lot of work going on under, underneath uh, the covers of those crypto query optimizers in order to do that. But ultimately it's just doing the same kind of querying and filtering that we've spent this episode talking about, which is just really cool to think about it. Yeah. The, this part in, at this portion of the book, they, uh, you know, only give like a brief overview of the, of parallel, uh, query execution. And they basically say like, it's a really complex topic and they do get into it in a later chapter in more detail. So, you know, yep. Makes me wonder if there's a book just on like query optimizers. 
So we talked about like a NoSQL and, and like one of the advantages we said of uh, relational databases is like you don't have to know as much about your data and its use cases because the query optimizer is responsible for really figuring out how to, to get your data back in the most efficient way based on its statistics and indexes that it has. And so it frees you up to just focus on the, the shape of the data and modeling in the real world where NoSQL is kind of the opposite where you really have to know your use cases because you're the one kind of designing these smaller pieces. So it's just kind of cool to think about the query optimizer as being this like super big brain with a whole bunch of, I don't know, spider legs or something that's able to to do all this work and put it all together for you so you don't have to think about it as a, as a human or a query developer. Well, I mean, you say that, but like, I know that we've definitely been in situations specifically in like SQL related worlds where you're looking at the execution plans, just like, Hey, why is my query not, not working as well as I want it to. And and you look at those execution plans and like some of them, you can, you can create some really hairy uh, queries, you know, where like the execution plans are like, wait, what? I can't even, I can't even see this whole execution plan on one screen. And I've got like this giant widescreen monitor and I still can't see it. Yeah, there's a couple of tricks where um, sometimes a SQL Server had a problem with it. Was it either with AND statements or OR statements where it was more efficient sometimes to do a union of two queries than it was to do a, like an OR statement, which seems totally crazy. But it was, we, you know, we saw it in practice a lot, just kind of a, a defect. Hopefully they fixed that. Uh, so, you know, it, it always helps to, to know that you can't trust it fully. But, it, you know, in practice, uh, those query optimizers do a great job about getting that stuff out of your face. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, uh, yes, that's it for the chapter six. We are still not halfway through the book, but yeah. uh, we hope you're enjoying it. And I know that we certainly are. It's definitely one of our uh, favorite books that collectively between the three of us, uh, I think we all agree that this is by far our favorite one so far. And I'm sure that you will agree once you uh, give this book a read. So if you'd like to have a chance to own this book, you can head to www.codingblocks.net slash episode 172. Uh, leave us a comment for a chance to win a copy of the book. And uh, it'll definitely be uh, in the show notes as one of the resources we like for uh, this episode. And with that, we head into my favorite portion of the show. It's, oh, no, wait, this is Alan's favorite portion of the show. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, Michael, you you said that wrong. Oh, you're right, Alan. Thank you. Uh <laughs> Uh, yeah. So this is Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. All right. And so I've got some, uh, terminal related, uh, goodies here. So first I think we've, we've given Oh My Z shell as a tip of the week before, uh, I believe, sure. right? Yeah. Pretty okay. Sure. Yeah. So uh, just a quick recap, it's basically a really nice plugin for Z shell, which is the default in OSX and just probably the most popular shell at this point. Uh, and oh my z shell is a really nice way of organizing um and has plugins and a really nice ecosystem around uh really nice user experience I almost think about it's like almost like a brew for your shell so you can add like um autocomplete for kubectl or docker or um you know uh maybe show uh your um git branch that you're in and how many files you have difference and just really nice things like that just quality of life improvements uh for your actual terminal and uh, so that's a popular tool for that. Well, Bobby, friend Bobby, friend of the show, uh, had a really cool uh, theme that he told me about called Power Level 10K. And we'll have a, 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 what you call it, a link here. And this thing is the best. And calling it a theme is misleading because it makes you think like colors, right? 
But for me, uh, it brings in uh, some really nice fonts, which gives you some really cool icons, which look really cool. And it also uh, is really good at uh, supporting plugins. So like, um, for example, you know, I mentioned Git, being able to see your Git uh, history and changes. <clears throat> One of my favorite things is uh, if I start typing K for kubectuttle, uh, which I have an alias for, for Kubernetes, it will automatically pop up the context that I'm in and will show it. So it knows I'm trying to do something in Kubernetes. Uh, if you type kubectuttle, it does the same thing. It will say, hey, this is the context you're in. So if you run this command, this is where you're running it, which is like a kind of a common pain point. And uh, it's got really nice visual customizations too. So my favorite thing about it, this is the reason why I had to switch, is all that stuff I mentioned, like showing the Git diffs and the branch you're on and the path you're in and the user you're logged into and the context. You can put all that stuff on a line above where you're typing. Man, I hate when your terminal takes up like half the screen is your username and the directory you're in. And if you put the Git branch in there, it's like, uh, you know, a, it's considerable size, right? It's a considerable portion of your uh, terminal size, potentially. So any commands that you end up typing end up going off screen or whatever. It's just annoying if you've got that terminal running in a smaller window. And uh, another problem I've, I've had with shell commands, sometimes I'll run something. And if it's a lot of output, you scroll up and it can be kind of hard to see where you ran the command. If you run it more than once, you know, to basically see where the output of one command starts and the, the next begins. Um and so by having these like nice looking uh, this information break between commands, it makes it really easy to scroll, scroll, scroll. Oh, and that's why I ran this command. And the beginning of my output is for this run, uh, which has been really nice. And it's got a like a wizard that walks you through everything. And it's really easy to reconfigure. So you basically uh, start this thing running. It runs a command in the background called like init or something, power level init. And it'll say, hey, do you see this icon? Yes, no, no. Okay, would you like to install this font? Y for yes. Okay. Uh, next, do you like this style? This style? Do you want this stuff on the next line? Do you like, you know, do you like this kind of connector? Do you want to show the time? Uh, things like that. And it just kind of walks through and, and asks it. And so it was just a breeze to set up. And it was so nice for Kubernetes to be able to see your context uh, easily. Very cool. Yeah, we've mentioned um, oh my Z Shell, uh, what, back in episode 138? And as a tip of the week, and then in episode 149, when we talked about our favorite tools, uh, somebody mentioned, I don't want to say it was Alan, I think that mentioned it there. Um, so yeah. Yeah. I know it's really popular. Um, and I should mention too. So I, I mentioned Domizy Shell. That's not the only way to get this uh, theme. I didn't realize this, but apparently you can just get it through Homebrew or uh, Arch Linux, or you can do a manual uh, setup here. So it'll just set that stuff up uh, for you and just kind of normal, you know, non Z shell environments. Yeah, it is crazy. Like how Z shell has taken over. Cause you know, forever it was like, a, uh, it seemed like the battle was between forever that I recall, like bash and corn shell were like the two, you know, most popular. And now, in like recent years, especially after Apple changed the default <clears throat> from Bash yep. to Z Shell, um, like it, oh, yeah, that was the exploded. end of the war. Yeah. Oh, and I do have one other one. Uh, so in uh, in Windows, I th- I believe this happens by default when you install VS Code, it adds to your path so that you can be in a directory, say in a terminal, and you just type code dot, and it'll open up VS Code in that terminal. You can also and that's really nice. 
Yeah, you can also write. So yeah, it sets it up for you. And same with like if you go in your downloads folder, say, and you just want to open up a text file or something you downloaded from the internet, and you just want to view it in VS Code, instead of going through the file open and browsing to that location, if you're already there, you can just do code in the file name, and it's going to open it for you. You couldn't do that in OS uh, in Mac OS because it doesn't automatically add it to your path. So I Google how to add VS Code to my path because I wanted to be able to just say like, you know, do a lot more stuff on Terminal on Mac. I want to say like code file name and just open up the JSON file or whatever I want to see and, you know, have all the nice stuff I use code for. Well, I Googled it and uh, actually the recommended way to add VS Code to your path is to do it through VS Code. So if you do the command P and just type, start typing (laughs) add to path, it'll go ahead and prompt you. And say, would you like to, you know, it's got a, one of the actions you can do is add VS code to your path. And you just hit enter and it just does it. And it was so nice. It was like, wow, I've been <laughs> annoyed by this thing for so long. And it was such an easy fix. Is it, it's, it's, um, it's shift though, right? Like command shift P to bring up the, con- oh yeah, you're right. Palette, I always forget. Right? Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Command shift P and then for windows, I don't see it. <laughs> It's control shift P for windows code is so nice. Yeah. And I believe it's command. Yeah. Command shift command P. Yeah. So I just thought it was cool. But I think though, if I remember right, doesn't it prompt you like after a fresh install of it? Like as soon as you open it up for the first time, it's like, Hey, do you want me to also add this to your path? And you're like, I mean, unless you want to feel pain cause you don't like yourself, then you would press no, but otherwise, you know, maybe I just missed it. I didn't. Uh, oh, I that didn't sounds more likely because I that hate to think that you needed like you know some a mental day health you know whatever. Pretty much any time a system <laughs> asks me if I also want to do something because it makes my life better, I'm like no. <laughs> like you want to track Maybe me? You no. do need to, maybe we need to get you some help then. We can location services. No. Oh well, I don't know. Like mobile apps, I'm definitely like more uh, know about. You know. What about, um, would you like to enable notifications for this website? No, no block, block your ability to know my location. And I don't want your notifications. And, uh, yes, I, I will be better for it. Thank you. Got one more for you. What about, uh, when you're using the app, it's like, Hey, do you like using this app? Oh yeah. I hate this. I hate this. Yeah. Cause if I say yes, you're going to try and take me to the freaking app store. I'm like, Nope, I hate your app. I hate it. No, I always view it the other way around. Like really? Oh, you ask, you say no, they ask for feedback. Yeah, they they want to know what you didn't like about it so they can correct it. If you do like it, they want you to leave a review so that they can get the five star. But if if they don't if you if you don't like it, then they want to know why. How do they know that you left a review? Do they know? Because I, I feel know. like if I say yes and finally go review, uh and you should review things because it's really awesome and helps them out a lot. <laughs> if you leave a review <laughs> crap. <laughs> How do they know and do they keep prompting you to leave review even though you've left a review? I don't know. I guess maybe that's if you say yes and they're like, would you would you like to go to the app store to review us? You just say yes. And then you do it because it's really helpful and then they don't bother you anymore. Or maybe you say yes and you don't bother to like actually leave the leave the review, you just go back to the home screen and then they've already like, you know, written Locked a it. bit to their log to say like, No, he left the review. Yep. But really you didn't because you were a jerk. <laughs> but I would do I'm, that. But maybe we're biased. I don't know. All right. So uh, for the tip of the week, I got a couple fun ones here for you. So one, 
that was this was mentioned a long time ago. Uh, for, I don't even remember who mentioned it, so I'm, I'm sorry. I can't give the credit where credit's due. But this was mentioned in our Slack a long time ago. So, you know, as a parent, uh, you you want to, to teach your kids things, right? And so this is a way to, like, um, teach your kids all about the joys of Kafka as a bedtime story. And it's called Gently Down the Stream. And... <laughs> It's a website that if you go look at it, it's it it's a very uh, well made website, and you can just flip through it and uh, teach your kids all about Kafka and you know how it works and the joys of Kafka and whatnot. All through like <laughs> like a, it it really is written as a children's book with like little otters and they're swimming and they're like you know the 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 trees in the background and everything like it's. It's quite uh, impressive that this person put this together for the, for his uh, his girls. Yeah. So so there's your your first fun one, <clears throat> and then another fun one that was making its way around uh, the interwebs that I also saw on um, our Slack. So if you're not already on our Slack, by the way, you should definitely uh, uh, join our Slack. So I think you can go to www.codingblocks.net/slack, or even at the top of the page, there's a link for join our Slack. But uh, this one was making its way around the interwebs for uh, the the article's name is Lesser Known Postgres Features. And there's like all sorts of things in here. There's like, oh, uh, you know, things that you didn't know that you could do with Postgres, like find overlapping ranges or generate a unique ID without an extension or... Um, keep a separate file history per database or uh, multi-line quoting in, in your SQL statements, things like that. Like there's a whole slew of them. There's, there's like probably a dozen and a half or two dozen different things here of things that you could do. Like one of them was temporary views. Uh, so if you wanted to have like <clears throat> maybe in your, your uh, procedure or query, you want to do something and you want the view there available so that you could reuse it over and over and over. Um, and maybe a view would work better for your needs rather than a CTE. But at the same time, if your transaction fails, you don't want to leave any like real schema around. So, you know, temporary view. So there's a whole bunch of them in there. <clears throat> um, ways to pivot, uh, to, to generate, to produce pivot tables, uh, how to prevent setting an auto-generated key, um, how to grant permissions on specific columns or find the value of a sequence without advancing it. Uh, all, all sorts of great features there. So um, we'll have links to both of those things in the show notes. And with that, uh, if you haven't already subscribed to us, you can find um, us on Spotify iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to find your podcast. We, we certainly hope that we're there. If we're not, um, I'm not sure how you found us, but Hey, let us know and we will figure that out. And, uh, like, like I asked earlier, um, if you, dear listener, if you would please uh, find it in your heart to head to www.codingblocks.net slash review. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> every time the the late night uh dj voices just crack me up anyway we would greatly appreciate it if if you would leave us a review if you haven't already all right thank you morgan freeman and uh while you're at it uh codingblocks.net should uh, check out our show notes examples discussion a whole lot more and uh feedback question rants can be sent to 
uh, our Slack. And you can get there from hoonbox.net slash Slack. It's easy to go ahead and just uh, click a link to join. And uh, you can follow us on Twitter at CodingBlox or head over to CodingBlox.net and uh, find all our clippies or what did I call them? Oh, dillies. <laughs> links. Dillies. Yeah, see, I'm, oh, geez, I'm so old. Find all our <laughs> dillies at the top of the page. 